0: Okay, I think we're live. Good morning, everyone. It's April 1st, so happy first day of April. It's also my grandfather's birthday. (laughs) Um, And uh, so it's the April 1st edition of the Saturday Free School. Um, Welcome everyone who's joining us online. And we have, as usual, a lot of our colleagues from the Free School on the screen. Um, Today, we're going to conclude this round of reading of Black Reconstruction um and but to begin we'll first address the financial and banking crisis in the west but i'll turn it to um dr montero to start us off
1: hi everybody hi uh april first to everybody and happy birthday to your grandfather and i have to tell you emily he looks great and you know, remember when he first came down with COVID, you were a little pessimistic. I said, no, don't count that guy out, you know? And he looks wonderful. He looks just like your mother, by the way, her father. I mean, the guy looks wonderful. So I was so happy to see that, you know, just extend to him our our congratulations and happy birthday. Uh, But, Just a few things. I mean, you know, I've been talking to Emily and I don't know who else about uh, how we understand this financial crisis. And uh, it is still a matter uh, besides the actuality of it. And it is serious. It's very serious. Uh, Even though it's not on the front pages of the newspapers, it's a very serious question. perhaps carries existential uh, meaning. Uh, However, uh, there is still this question of how to explain it, how to interpret it, uh, and how to understand it. Uh, This is the big question. Uh, And the other part of this is uh, what do any of us, not just us here, but uh, the most uh, astute observers, how much do any of us know about the financial system and the way it operates? Uh, and that's the big problem. Now, uh, I tend to uh, in my reading, uh, reject most commentators, and i I Martin Wolf of the Financial Times, uh, Nuria El Rubini, um, the writer and analyst, and uh, to a certain extent Adam Tooze, uh, T O O Z E. Uh, those three, I kind of try to follow what they're saying, uh, and um, of those three, I tend to. Um, uh, I tend to agree more with uh, uh, Nuriel Rubini. Uh, in fact, um, uh, you know we maybe get back to his book called Mega Threats um, which he see, sees a convergence of crises, including uh, tremendous debt, uh, the uh, stretching of the financial system beyond, anything that it's capable of handling. When I say the financial system, I'm talking pretty much about the fundamental institutions that constitute uh, the financial system. And so we're talking about, of course, the largest banks, uh, hedge funds, brokerage houses, uh, and like that. When we say the largest, not only the largest Wall Street banks, but that next tier of medium banks like uh, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, uh, I think one called New Republic Bank, et cetera, uh, which now is the epicenter of the banking financial crisis that we're currently in. But... uh, but Rubini sees this, um, what he called mega threats, uh, ex, uh, a, trim, uh, a convergence of crises that produce uh, a existential crisis for the system. Uh, now, Adam Tooze, and you, did I spell his name T O O Z E? Adam Tooze seems to have taken Rubini's concept. Of these macro threats, mega threats to the system. And he tries to talk about the current financial crisis, the current banking crisis in that, in relationship to these mega threats. Oh, I forgot to say one the big banks, and forgive me, when we talk about the financial system, the biggest banks, the major players, uh, Uh, in the global financial system. And then uh, government institutions such as the Federal Reserve in Europe, the European Central Bank, uh, in the United States, the Treasury Department, uh, also the FDIC, you know, this bailout mechanism when banks get in trouble, when their uh, depositors get in trouble, uh, They're bailed out by this so-called federal insurance uh, institutions. But it is a complex of institutions, both government and private, but then in this mix, you also have to look at strategic players. Now, it's difficult to name them. In other words, those you know, CEOs of banks and all of that that we see in the news uh, are not necessarily the most important strategic players, uh, and that's what gives a uh, an aspect of uncertainty to all of this. Uh, in other words. Uh, We know that, for instance, Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. We know it was, as they say, over-leveraged. In other words, it uh, had more debt on its books than assets. In other words, it was borrowing more than it was bringing in. And there are certain signs that players in the financial world can see uh, extreme over leveraging when your bonds are not worth what they were when you bought them. In other words, your government bonds. I'll explain that a little bit more because it gets crazy. But but a lot of shit happens. And then investors, people that hold the shares of the bank, let us say, begin to withdraw and sell their shares to get out before a total collapse of the bank. So the value of Silicon Valley Bank declined by over 80% in the weeks uh, preceding and the weeks right after uh, the collapse. So the bank became literally worthless. The shares in the bank were worthless. Now, what triggered this rush to get away from the bank? Oh, we don't know. We don't know everything that was happening because you're talking about a few very strategically placed players who have all of these researchers, people who do nothing but sit in front of computers 24-7. following the ups and downs of stocks, of especially stocks in banks and other financial institutions. So I say all of that to say that uh, in detail, uh, no one, at least that I read, can explain all of what happened. We do know, and this is, you get this from um, uh, Martin Wolf in the Financial Times and, and Adam Tooze. They talk about policies that the government has to institute to prevent this thing from getting completely out of hand. That's what they talk about. But they never say what will be the medium range or short term impact of these policies does that make sense they never say i mean printing more money well printing more money is part of what produces inflation and hyperinflation okay you print more money you uh bail out these financial institutions and so-called banks but what are the consequences But more than that, not just the economic and financial consequences, but the consequences upon the masses of working people upon the poor and so on. Um, So they talk about policy and what the Fed or the central bank should do. But from my observation, they are not dealing with the short, medium and long range impact of this. However, and, and what, what just one other thing, in an article by Martin Wolf, and I think you all might find this interesting, he talks about the financial crisis of 2008. As a financial crisis, he says 2007, to 2014, I think he says 2014, maybe 2015. In other words, he sees this crisis, the previous one, as a long duration financial crisis, which took up to $12 trillion of government buybacks of bonds and stocks to just get things back to some sort of normalcy or as they would say, equilibrium, uh, or again, saving what they call the systemically uh, important banks. So I I think Wolf has introduced something very interesting, this long financial crisis, and by his accounting, that we've only um, been out of uh, for about eight years, and now we're back into another one. But this time in a world where people, where nations like China and Saudi Arabia, those two in particular, Russia to a lesser extent, other nations too, are no longer interested in holding on to U.S. government bonds, often called treasury notes. They don't want the American debt. They don't feel that the U.S. can be trusted, its policies are are doing damage to the world, as well as the fact that they've used the privileged position of the U.S. dollar to impose damaging economic and financial sanctions upon countries all over the world. So the de-dollarization is both a response to the recklessness of the players in the U.S. financial system, in other words, the CEOs and boards of these uh, big and medium sized banks, but also the fact that the US government does everything to create an environment of this type of recklessness. The world is no longer willing to support this type of recklessness. And that is why China and Saudi Arabia in particular, two of the major holders of US Treasury notes are getting rid of them and accumulating gold. And the other side of this is the de-dollarization. This is, I mean, I don't have the words to fully describe what could be the consequences of this. Um, If the dollar is no longer the dominant currency in the world, if major economies in the world no longer trust the dollar, which is not backed by gold, but the good faith as it said on the dollar, of the U.S. government, if the U.S. government is no longer reliable or trusted as an objective player, as a fair player in the international financial and economic relationships, if it, if the dollar is used by the U.S. government to establish and fortify US hegemony if that's what it's about if there is no win win if there is no if there are no international rules and i'm not talking about the rules based uh world order that the US government Biden administration talk i'm talking about if there are no rules that nations and corporations uh abide by in their financial and economic relations if the United States feels that it has the right to trump whatever other nations do and to punish other nations, then why should we hold U.S. bonds? Why should we even trade using the U.S. dollar? Why should we not seek a new world order, a new set of alliances. And this is what we see happening. The dollar is weakening, and financial and banking crises are becoming ever more frequent. I I was saying to Emily, and I think I was saying to Sophie too, in talking about these things, that... I know a lot of people make a big thing of Michael Hudson. Michael Hudson, and I said to Emily, he doesn't know what he's talking about. It's it's talk, and and you know in crises like this, the easiest thing is to just talk, and you get a lot of talk from people. Um, also, even you take people like Martin Wolf or or uh, Adam Tooze or or. Not so much Nouriel Bubini, I think he's the most honest of all of them, but uh, you can only get so much from them because there's certain regions of this world economy, especially the deep plumbing you know of the world financial system and by what that is, very few people have gone down into the basement, you know, it's just like my basement. I don't like to go down there. It's too many uh, spider webs and it's too damn, you know. Who wants to go, you know, that's why people get plumbers, you know, to go and check their pipes. Hey man, we don't fully know what's going on. And all of these invented financial instruments you know be it cryptocurrency be it um, uh, subprime mortgages uh be it um, uh, financing uh, tech upstarts artificial intelligence upstarts uh, all of these, Kind of instruments that allow, and I put quotes, investors to make money without investing in the production of goods and services for a market. Um, This has unbelievable consequences. And it is about making money off of money. And hence, you get all of this talk about new monetary theory. Well, but how does your new theory relate to older theories? And by the way, there is not one single theory of money because there's not a single function of money. And, you know, we can get into that. I don't feel like talking about that right now. But uh, I say all of that to say, that it is indeed a financial crisis. Few, if any, people fully understand the totality of it. But the other thing that none of them seem to want to talk about is that financial crisis is in the end a political crisis. Because, because the political uh, situation, let us say in the United States, but throughout the Western world, Uh, is so gridlocked, is so divided that governments uh, or the elected parliaments and congresses cannot decide on anything. So they kick the ball into the court of the Federal Reserve, just like they can't decide upon legislation. So they kick the ball in the uh, court of the Supreme Court. So you have unelected officials deciding policy for hundreds of millions of people in the United States and nothing is debated or discussed. That's what I want to say. It's a huge political crisis that uh, I think, sharpens and intensifies what is a existential crisis of the financial system. Nobody wants to decide anything. So I'll just stop there. I think uh, uh, Jerry, you had your hand, you wanted to say something.
2: Oh no, I just, I just had some questions based on what you're saying. Cause well, it's like basically two questions. One of which is, I think when a lot of commentators who are trying to understand the svb crisis or the the bailout the collapse and all of that i think there is kind of a interpretation of all of it that it was an intentional that they basically a a a select few people basically intentionally crashed collapsed that bank and it's part of a larger narrative that i've seen voiced by people like tucker you know, that, say, the the Biden administration is trying to deliberately undermine, actually, U.S. hegemony in some ways. and But I I think it's, it's a larger question of, like, do you interpret it as something that was deliberately done, or do you view it as a manifestation of the kind of environment that was created within the financial system in the U.S.? Yeah. I think that those have different implications, and maybe it could be a mix of both, but you know, there's, yeah, there's ways that people interpret it as like, you know, people like Tucker who are like, actually, US dollar hegemony is a good thing, because it means that um, there's not as much inflation in the US, like things like that, and that it's actually been good positive for the American people. But I feel like, and so in that sense, they interpret the Biden administration and those elites in the Biden Biden administration is actually trying to deliberately undermine the position of the United States. But I've just seen that as one of the running narratives. But yeah, so like one of my questions
1: is- Can I just know, just say something about that? First of all, Tucker Carlson is a libertarian and a often he morphs into conspiracy theories. Uh, of course, there are strategic players on both sides, on the government side and on the banking side. Yes, granted. But then everything is not a matter of of individuals, there are some structural issues, there are global international relationship issues. and um, and there you know there, there's such enormous gaps in uh, Tucker's um, analysis that I find it, and this is not just with him. I find so many people talking about this. It's almost worthless because uh he it's just he doesn't he doesn't know how to look at a more holistic and um i use this word dialectical mm-hmm. uh, process there's a whole lot going on, and uh s v b is just a part of something larger
2: right because I think it it's kind of like yeah whether. I think it's true that, you know, you can look at the American ruling class and see a lot of things that they're deliberately doing to basically attack the American people. But I think what's missing is a sense of like systemic crises, like crises that are actually produced through Mm -hmm. history and not just because a handful of people suddenly randomly decided one day that they wanted to like bring down Mm -hmm. the US dollar. I guess that gets to my other question, which is, what do you think will actually be the impact, especially on the American people, if this trend of de-dollarization continues to unfold? Because, like, I, I don't know if I'm understanding it correctly, but some things that I've seen is that basically if U.S. if the U.S. dollar hegemony is undermined, that this will lead to basically even more mega inflation within the United States. because. Part of the the strength of the position of the dollar is that it guarantees that it relative to other currencies that it's much stronger in comparison to those. So I guess, yeah, that's my question is like, what do you think will actually be the outcome of that? And what would be the way out of it, um, especially for the U.S., like the people of the U.S. Yeah. population?
1: Yeah. Um, obviously... You know, we're talking about a world economy and we're talking about the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency. In other words, um, the dollar is linked to the closest thing to gold that we have in the modern economy, and that is oil. It's what we call the petrodollar. In other words, the Saudis and the Gulf states and 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 all oil producers, for the most part, have agreed that they would only accept dollars in trade for oil, okay? So every central bank, be it in a European country, a Central American or Latin American country, or an African country, an Asian country, has to have a certain amount of dollars in their central bank to cover the cost of oil imports. Okay. So those dollars that all banks, all nations, and their central banks hold in order to pay to settle their accounts when they buy oil is what we call the petrodollar. But this puts the dollar in a privileged position in the global economy, which means that the dollar should and pretty much never loses its value because nations have to constantly buy dollars on money markets because they need dollars. So in buying dollars, they keep the value of the dollar very high, which means, secondly, that the U.S. government is always able to buy. I mean, to uh, uh, to borrow or print money, because as you know, we can print like you know, uh, uh, like during the, the financial crisis, two thousand and eight, print money. Or if you don't, if you can't afford to pay for, let's say, war in Ukraine and uh, financial bailouts, well, we got the solution: print dollars, and we'll pay for it that way. You say, "Well, won't that lower the value of the dollar?" Well, it should. Accept that the dollar is the global financial. Uh, currency, the reserve currency. So even though you have a situation where the value of the dollar should go down with all this printing of money, you have a countervailing trend, which means that, well, all these countries have to buy dollars, which keeps the value of price of dollars up, which also means that the United States can print treasury notes or government bonds and sell them to countries like China, has a lot of dollars coming in because it's, you know, the workshop of the world or manufacturing iPhones and televisions and cars. So got all these dollars coming in. So what the hell are we going to do with these dollars? We will put them in a safe place known as government or U.S. Treasury notes. But then, so that keeps the borrowing capacity of the U.S. government at a very, very high level. No economy in the world has been able to operate like the U.S. economy, like the U.S. government, and that's precisely because of the privileged position of the U.S. dollar. Perhaps there's never been a currency in modern human history which has been so privileged, which thereby allows the U.S. government and financial institutions to operate recklessly and to endanger the well-being of the American people, the masses of the American people. I mean, and this is what, you know, everybody is saying, and it is not a pretty picture. Um, If the dollar is no longer privileged or less privileged, what will the impact upon ordinary Americans be? Because, you know, The United States does not have an industrial base. We don't produce televisions. We buy them from China and Japan and Mexico. We don't produce a lot of things that we consume or most of what we consume, forgive me, but that's because of a strong dollar. Suppose the dollar is weakened. Suppose inflation Weakens the value of the dollar. Well, it means one thing for a big bank, but to the ordinary person, everything costs more. And even in the discussion of inflation, they're talking about general numbers. They're not talking about the day-to-day lives of people who can't keep up with this inflation, and they can't. The American people will be poorer increasingly. To save the banks, you have to kick the ordinary working class and poor person under the bus. This is why the category of the working poor now might constitute the majority of the working class. Um, this is and so all of the anti China talk that you hear from people like Tucker. I mean, it's just silliness. He comes off as a very silly, stupid man because the rebalancing of the world economy now depends upon what China does to rebalance the world economy, which also means a retreat from all of this belligerence and war talk. War tears up uh, the world economy. War is destructive of economic relationships. So you can't have, oh, we're going to rebalance the economy and at the same time go to war with China. I mean, even the worst crack at it would know better than that. It is such insanity. Let me put this again, and we see it. I guess this takes us into, you know, where we're going, just the other side of this. These new economic relations, which are also political relationships, when Saudi Arabia and Iran, enemies, say that we want to be members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and Brits. Uh, If they are saying that we want to trade, for example, in Yuan, the Petro Yuan, or the uh, Rupee-Ruble relationships, that is Russia and India, or the fact that Brazil and China say that their trade will be in their currencies. And this is why people trust, this is a statement of the fact that governments trust the Chinese government more than they trust the United States. And this is going to have a terrible impact upon the american people unless there is a great democratic movement of the people to take power into their own hands that that's
3: do you think part of this movement doc has to do with like a reindustrialization
1: well it has to
3: to have an economy based on real things real jobs actual value that's not right. on like some technocrat printing money um, or some fragile political consensus. Um, I was just thinking about... Oh, no,
1: I, I agree with that. A peace economy, a reindustrialization economy, an investment in the people economy. I mean, these are simple things. And people understand them. And this is why the politics of movements is very important and that we understand the struggle to unite the american people and this is back to our discussion last week any anything that uh promotes divisiveness and divisions and 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 cannot and does not seek those points of agreement be it on war and peace be it on AFRICOM, be it on ukraine but Ultimately, every discussion of peace is also a discussion of a peace economy. And every discussion of that, uh, not like Norman Finkel thinks, takes you back to Bernie Sanders. No, it takes you back to Martin Luther King. But yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. The main thing I wanted to say was the thing I'm really stuck on still, which I know, You talked about last week, Doc, but that's why I spent the whole week thinking, trying to think about the financial crisis. And most of the time, I just feel too dumb to really understand it. But the thing I'm stuck on is the point that the financial crisis is a political crisis, because to even understand that for real, for real, it also brings it back to the question of what will a people's movement in this country look like? Right. And then that doesn't lead you to just Michael Hudson or even Marx it actually leads you to King because it's a question of what will a, what will what will a, a people what will a people must do to achieve this nation take power whatever you want to say it because like the thing that i kept writing down over and over and it kind of made, started making me think a lot was like what you said about like the question of even money like the dollar it's not just a financial thing, it's also a question of how much do you trust a government? It's, for me, I kind of see it connected to this crisis of of legitimacy um, and like a quickly eroding, um, a quickly, the quick erosion of trust, even from the people of things, institutions, not just the institutions of finance and the economy, but even things like with Trump's indictment, the erosion of people's trust in law and legal institutions, um government institutions um and I feel like those are connected um and then it also brought me to like I really thought this week about um what you said last week and I told I was talking to Jeremiah about it too where you said you're like in some ways this crisis it didn't just today's crisis didn't just begin because a handful of people made like the wrong financial mistake in the markets or something like you can connect it to even the assassination of Gaddafi in Libya Um, And you can and then it puts it again like it's not just a financial crisis, it's a political one where this U.S. government like it was when Gaddafi proposed like Africa to get on the same financial, um, the same go back to gold or get back to the same um, together as a continent Mm
4: -hmm.
0: on the same financial basis, which was like not just necessarily a challenge to the U.S., but it was also a recognition of like a long systemic crisis, mm-hmm. political. Um, but I also brought that up just because it reminded me of what we talked about. How you have to, you can't just see this as a financial crisis. You have to also see it as something that warrants a conversation about international democracy. Um, and oh, what else would you say? But yeah, just that because I I wanted to also bring up the people's movement thing. How you need to see the financial crisis as a political one, because I actually think it also brings up the question over and over again of we also need to recognize when you kind of always have to be looking out for when in what is a terrible crisis in all dimensions and thus an existential crisis of in the US, like how are the ruling class or even you could say strategic players who we don't even know, Mm How are they trying to distract the people, even with this financial crisis, I feel like? Because I started thinking about how everyone, for example, I feel like there's a new movement to convince people that the enemy is CEOs of companies, like the Starbucks CEO. But it's kind of what you were saying, where it's like, actually, it's not the CEOs who are necessarily the most strategic players. It's something deep. It's a deeper plumbing. But in. In some ways I feel like people like Bernie Sanders or these fake progressives who are elected in government, they're starting to do these congressional, like these congressional shows of like parading out like Howard Schultz or other CEOs, saying, like, oh, let's put them to the guillotine and they will solve our problems. The problem is that like the CEOs hold most of the wealth. But actually, there's a deeper plumbing. Yeah. Um, and I actually feel like in some ways it's a little bit of a it's a, it's a similar distraction or neutral, trying like an ideological neutralization in the same ways that people are trying to say that Trump is the enemy. Um, and if we can just neutralize, like we need to bring back like the law, which means like indicting Trump or we need to bring back like financial law, which is like holding greedy CEOs accountable. But the thing is, is like it's deeper. Um, so I was just kind of connecting all this.
5: I kind of did, but I'm also not quite. Uh, this is just something I thought about for the first time. I, I feel like I have I have also had a very difficult time understanding the financial crisis. Like when I go back to California, I always ask my mom for financial advice and she's like, let's just move the money from here to here. And I always do it. I have no idea if that's good sound advice, because I feel like ordinary people, even the most smartest people. Yeah, there's there's just no way. Now more than ever, to really like, yeah, not just see the future, but just start asking. They can't help but ask questions of where things are, what this will mean. And some people are more afraid to even begin asking that they're like, no, there's no crisis, or like, no, we're going in, and what's that response going to be? Um, I was just going to say that I hadn't had just thought about what you had said about the importance of the people's movement and how all of this doesn't just lead you to Marx or. Um, but a King, and I actually was just, I, I hadn't thought about this phrase in a very long time, but it just came to me. It's that when King gave that speech in 1963 at Washington, he used the phrase, we've come here to cash a check. Yeah. But even notion that notion I feel like I looked at the speech again, and there were just so many notes of like, yeah, it's just, we've come to the nation's capital to cash a check. Um, and like when the architects of our, I'm just gonna quote a little bit, that's okay. Mm-hmm. When the architects of our great republic wrote this magnificent words of the Constitution and Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir, like inherit. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men would be guaranteed the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuits of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring the sacred obligation, America has given its colored people a bad check—a check that has come back with, marked as insufficient funds. Yeah. But I think that yes. Oh, wait, they get it? Yeah, oh in, instead of honoring this <laughs> sacred obligation, America has given its colored people a bad check—a check that has come back marked as insufficient funds. Um, I'd like to read the next few lines, which I think are really um, hard-hitting as well. But we refuse to believe. The bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. So we have come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom, the security of justice. And we've come to a small spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. Now is not the time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now it's time to make the promise of democracy. I mean, I've yet to really see these metaphors. I don't feel like it would have been natural for me <laughs> to think in terms of both like a literal sort of like banking or financial sort of system. But I do think that um, if you do see it as a political crisis today, or even these questions of economic, you know, as always linked with you know politics, political economy, but even what this means for a people's movement, I think it's opening up a lot of thoughts that I'm just just sitting with, and I feel like I don't know why people aren't reaching for this Mm -hmm. legacy in this time more than ever. Even if these are metaphors, I think these do refer a lot to this question of trust and what is not just money, but what value, Mm -hmm. values, everything, so that's, that's where I'm at. I'm curious to know if that sparked anything else for other people too.
6: Can I
2: just add, because that actually gets to some of the comments we have. Um, But yeah, so people like Todd, Wayne Curtis, Aaron, Ware Pilgrim, Christopher Romero on uh, YouTube and Facebook are saying good morning. And then Don DeBar shared the link, I think, to the Martin Wolf article on on Facebook from the Financial Times. And then um, there's a question from Wayne Curtis saying... I think I'll have to read Capital by Marx in order to have a base understanding for capitalism and its political activities and our wage working expendable neighborhoods. But it's framed as like a question, but I think part of kind of the underlying, I think logic of even the discussion we're having is, I feel like the question is not what is the best framework for understanding the economy, but rather what is the best framework for understanding the movement of history? and i feel like that because that ultimately is what marxism contributed was a al- like a kind of an- like a framework and a critique towards understanding the actual movement of history and i feel like what we're trying to get at is like yes you have to understand the economy but like in order to actually understand where things are moving which is ultimately like what is going to be the fate of the people of this country and also the peoples of the world like it's not like what we're trying to draw, tease out and develop is not just like a better framework of the economy, like understanding the economy than Marx, but rather like to use Marxism or to assume some of Marxist, like kind of Marxist categories and frameworks. But we're trying to get at a larger, a larger question of like, actually, where is his, like, where is the world moving? Where is history moving? Um, and I think that's also why, like, we centralized people like Du Bois, um, In that way, because we're not trying to basically develop like a better theory of like like economics, like a better theory of like critique of capitalism or something, but rather something that like assumes those things but is framed is aimed at like a larger question. I don't know. That was just a thought that I had because I think people may have a kind of instinctive reaction to be like, oh, like what is the best thing that I need to read to understand the economy today really the question is like yes we want to understand the economy but also ultimately like it's not just like the economy in an abstract sense but also fundamentally the people um and society and so so yeah that's just a thought that I had in relation to to one of the questions from the, the live stream
0: yeah I love the way you put that like bringing up the difference between seeking to understand the economy or seeking to understand history because I even feel like I even feel like for Marx, I really feel like Marx was trying to understand the movement of history or like the movement of people through the economy, which is part of the mistake to think that you can just understand the movement of history through the economy or economic relations or the economic relations, is even the basis of other relations or shapes other relations. But OK, I, I mean, I'm not the most Marxist. so I don't know. Jeremiah disagrees. But I think. I think, um, but I do think,
6: oh, shit, I'm forgetting
0: what I was going to say. Uh, uh, oh, but I feel like part of the, um, the interesting thing with even understanding the political crisis, the financial crisis and the political crisis in the world today is that I, I really like the point of also it's like, in some ways, I see it as Du Bois' understanding of law and chance, How much do you pinpoint it on rules, like laws, people following economic laws or economic rules or whatever? And then how much do you account for basically the human factor, which in some ways I see the world governments, I see governments like China or Saudi Arabia, like Saudi Arabia making the decision that we don't have confidence in the U S government anymore. And then thus making a certain decision. I find that to be much more of a human factor. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel like in some ways people, that's what a lot of people who are an, like analyzing the financial crisis in certain economic terms miss, which is how much are you accounting for the fact that you have world's peoples who are making decisions not simply based on like, yes, lack of confidence in the American government and like lack of confidence in the dollar, but it's also like, it's also said something about their understanding of history and the future. And also democracy in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's what I was also thinking about when thinking about like how important it is to seek to understand like I don't know, the way you said it, Jeremiah, it's like history, like we seek to understand history and basically the people, like the future of the people, and how much, especially if you're in America, that re- and I honestly I think the world Du Bois, like I'm really excited for us to discuss the logics or there's a certain philosophy or logics that you get in du bois that in some ways it helps you even to understand um like the financial and political crisis because in some ways i think that's what du bois was doing when he even describes the world in the world in africa he's describing how the world is changing but he's also connecting it to the the financial crisis that is happening because of world war ii and because of war
2: no no i totally agree i wasn't sorry i I wasn't disagreeing with what you're saying about i think it's more that like I don't know, I feel like Marx didn't like make a mistake. I feel like Marx contributed a lot in his time. I think the mistake is that today, if your worldview and your sense of how history moves and the role of anyone who sees himself as an agent of history, as an agent of history, it's the, the mistake is today to basically rely only on Marxism.
6: Yeah.
2: Like, Cause I don't know, yeah, I don't know if like Marx like made a mistake back when he was developing like his like his theories of capitalism and development, but the mistake is today if you rely only on that to understand like where things are going.
7: Yeah, 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 I agree. So, like for example, you know, bring, bringing it bringing it back to uh, Du Bois and Reconstruction. You you could think of Reconstruction as like, oh, you know, there's a new economic basis because we're not we're not doing slavery anymore, and that's true. Uh, but there is there is a new uh, basis for human relationships that okay. emerge that force a uh, different economy. And yes, we, you know, I uh, Du Bois assumes Marx, and so like the, the economy does affect the world you live in. We live in a physical world, uh, and so we are bound by it in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also affect the, uh, talking about Juche, we, we are the master of our universe and we affect the physical world too. Uh, and so humans ultimately decide. And so in in thinking about what it means for a new, uh, for example, global reserve currency, instead of having the US dollar uh, and the yuan, mm-hmm. I think that is signaling a new basis for human relationships on the international order.
6: Right.
7: Uh, I think that uh, a, a, especially the concept of peace is, uh, is is behind a new global reserve currency uh I, I believe that uh a, a concept of democracy of, of us uh on on the world scale deciding amongst each other what is best uh for the collective in in addition to our individual countries is the basis for a new uh global reserve currency as well uh in in addition to to of course no more so not not so much damn gambling on uh uh on the world economy uh and so uh, when, when uh, you know i i like hard technical things so you know i also like i, I get too caught up in some of these mechanisms man you know i've be on investopedia all day <laughs> but more, more, more importantly uh I, I i think the the logic of history as we've all been saying uh is is much more human uh and no uh analyst is going to give us that uh we should look i think it's important to see things like what is the, what the interest rate doing? Because I think that signals some of the decisions that people are making. That that is signaling uh, hu, uh, some human factors that are uh, uh, underplaying. Uh, like uh, for example, uh, you know, we need lower interest rates so we can borrow borrow more money and and fund the war in Ukraine. Uh, and uh, uh, we we need to have the global. World. We need to find a way to prop up uh, uh, American assets so that people will keep buying into the, uh, American dollars so that we can, uh, uh, have control with sanctions and, and be the, uh, world leader and the world governments, no one, so no one else can make money unless they're, all, uh, in agreement with the United States, mm-hmm. these, these human factors, uh, stemming from, uh, financial decisions and financial mechanisms are interesting and worthwhile.
8: I, I, I just wanted to quickly add that that the King uh, quote that Cathy was mentioning, uh, were you know, it made me think that, again, agreeing with everybody that thinking of everything from like an economic framework is not enough because then, you know, you wouldn't be able to connect, like the fact that, you know, in Philadelphia, we had a scare that there would be no drinking water, for instance, for a few days, what's happening in East Palestine, all these things are not unrelated from what's happening in the economic sphere. What's essential is that the social contract has broken down, like King was saying. And also, like, you know, this also cannot be understood without an analysis of imperialism, because what happens to the dollar, it affects the economies. For instance, right now, I was just commenting on the fact that the exchange rate between the rupee and the dollar is at an all time high. I mean, even though it seems like the dollar value is going down because of all these economic decisions I made in this country, it's affecting the economies of the rest of the world. So, you know, yeah, I just want to add that. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, also just coming from this um, left conference, it's just because of this left thinking, they can't see the change in political uh, in in the political directions because it's not just the composition of or the, the like they'll all try to characterize the economic nature of the state or who the but it, it's a question of political leadership um, and what decisions you make, what side of history you choose to be on. And that's really what we're seeing. And I just wanted to read this part from um, Propaganda of history, which I know we're going to read but maybe this is like just a a preview Um, and he's criticizing charles and mary beard's rise of american civilization he said one reads for instance charles and mary beard's rise of american civilization with a comfortable feeling that nothing right or wrong is involved manufacturing and industry develop in north agrarian feudalism develops in south they clash as winds and waters strive and the stronger forces develop the tremendous industrial machine that governs us so magnificently and selfishly today. Yet in this sweeping mechanistic interpretation, there is no room for the real plot of the story, for the clear mistake and guilt of rebuilding a new slavery of the working class in the midst of a fateful experiment in democracy, for the triumph of sheer moral courage and sacrifice in the abolition crusade, and for the hurt and struggle of degraded black millions in their fight for freedom and their attempt to enter democracy. Can all this be omitted or have suppressed in a treatise that calls itself scientific? And then you get into the question, what does it mean to be scientific? You know, what is science? And yeah, it's just, it's just a hell of a, it's just a hell of a formulation on page 715. of this, He didn't get tired by the end, he just kept going, so. Yeah, I think it it just, it goes to everything we're saying about um, human agency, human will, and just the power of being a human being um, and living, living for something.
9: Uh, just to add briefly, um, adding to Eddie's point, and, and as almost like a recap, because actually this week I was going back over the first chapter of Black Reconstruction, which I didn't I don't mean to pull us back to the front, but I just know that Du Bois is also talking about how slavery was the cause and effect of the civil war. And how, well, a conclusion that I was like coming or maybe it was also what he said specifically, I'm sorry if I'm not quoting directly, but um, how slavery marked like a beginning of another epoch mm-hmm. or like another era. Mm-hmm. So like back to what Eddie was saying about like, um, how not only like these relationships in the world are a beginnings or like, or what we're talking about is like this transition period to, um, but the fact that like, we are actually transitioning to another era. Yeah, I think um, you're
4: right. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. add that. Mm-hmm.
1: So um, maybe we could go on to I know Magna att- t- attended a couple of um, of events at Platypus, a couple of panels. Maybe she could give us a little synopsis. Of what went on.
3: Yes, I attended the second day of the Platypus Convention, and I went to two panels. Um, And the first one that I went to was called "Wither Maoism," and I believe it had a panelist. And I will I will just look it up for um, accuracy. But it had a it had first of all was Norman Finkelstein. Who, um, who was speaking, I think maybe from his unpublished memoirs, about how he became a Maoist and how he became disillusioned and his life lessons from that. Um, uh, a Trotskyite organization, um, I don't remember the name, I will pull it up now, uh, and also um, a, a young man who was from the, who is from a Maoist organization in from California, I believe, and someone from I think, the, the Communist Party of Great Britain. So I, the whole point of the panel was to raise this question of, it was called, wither Maoism. So raising this question of why is Maoism seeing this surge of popularity now? In a way, it's been more successful than Trotskyism. But just how do you um, make sense of this? Why, why are uh, certain young people turning towards this ideology in these times? um and also just reckoning with you know where the meeting points and similarities and differences and just this thing of what is that what is the state of the left and the i was texting emily throughout the panel and i think um yeah i mean everything we're talking about that approaching a world from this like looking at things from these uh kind of dogmas and trying to apply them to the current world situation, where does that really lead you? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think both sides, because they're they're they are framed themselves as kind of in opposition. You know, Trotsky on the on one the one hand, really believing in um, the Western working classes and kind of dismissing the class content of the national liberation struggles, and you really see a lot of that dismissiveness among a lot of those speakers, like. I actually got a little upset when one of them said um oh yeah the communists in indonesia they failed to prepare for the coup i was just like how can you say that how can you lay the blame for all this death and destruction on the indonesians Hmm. um i mean just just this kind of complete arrogance coming from the top and saying i know the right thing and you all were wrong So, I mean, that was one, you know, trend in the panel, Um, but I think we've seen that before. We know what that is. We've talked about it extensively in the free school, but um, so that was one thing. And the other is this question of Maoism and this question of are these small guerrilla uprisings in specifically a lot of the Philippines and India were mentioned quite a bit. And are these part of, you know, shaping the world historic movement Uh, of history today um and so it was um you know and the young man really believed that it was um that this is really uh, a cause for hope whereas other people on the panel were saying i mean look i've lived through this i've seen this this is just leading into failure and this is not going anywhere Um, but the young man kind of persisted in saying i believe in this you know i take my leadership from he was kind of saying that I take my leadership from these third world liberation struggles, and this is where young people today can find hope. But um, what I told Emily that I felt was really missing is just an understanding of the working class today and the struggle for peace, the common aspirations of people in wanting peace, You know, both in the heart of the empire, in the West, people who are so war weary, sick of these, this regime change, and also all over the world. People who are you know, moving their nations and saying, we want a different system. We're, we're tired of this Western uh, supremacy and destabilization. We want a new world democracy. So, I mean, this is, I guess also this is just what, what I really felt was what, what, is, what is always missing from cir- circles like this is, you know, the world communist movement, the anti-colonial struggle, the civil rights movement, the boys, the black liberation struggle, all of these things are not there. And so I myself am like, you know, I mean, it's always interesting to go and see what people are thinking. It was a big turnout of a lot of disillusioned young white people with a a smattering of Asians. Um, And so I thought that was also really interesting that there's just a lot of um, disappointed, angry young people just trying to search for something. But and also this thing of we need to be in conversation with history, and we need to have intergenerational dialogue. But also, which which history, or what what history? How do you understand history? What is your relationship to the people? And so, I mean, it was good to go and see, you know, what some of these conversations are. And but I, I think that you know the, the the kind of conversations we're having, I do feel, are much more advanced and much more in keeping with. Um, the conditions faced by working people today and understanding their movements. So that was one panel. The second panel was just Norman Finkelstein. um, And he was talking about his book, which is about um, basically uh, his gripes with cancel culture and really defending this idea of academic freedom. And the thing is, his, his whole critique of the woke is that it's a very simple critique that wokeism was brought out to uh stop class consciousness from growing so that that's the gist of it saying that a a lot of it has come up to uh, to stop the bernie movement and you know new york times which is famously so racist but all of a sudden they start talking about race and you know all of this at the very time and he specifically says the bernie sanders um, uh, movement, which he really sees as the highlight for the left in the last you know 10, 20 years um, where you have a movement of people across race, uh, at least under 30. Um, and so, uh, yeah, he really attacked uh, Ibram Kendi and the other figures that we've also looked for. But I would also say from a completely class reductionist perspective and a way that was kind of dismissive in a way that yes, it did come across as racist, I have to say. Um, and I, I, that's actually something that Nathan said. It's just like, you know, why is he not looking to the civil rights movement?
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, why is he? He was, he was drawing extensively from Rosa Luxemburg, and um, also he's, talk, he's reading Trotsky, and his great figure that he was really looking towards is John Stuart Mill. <laughs> and I felt that it was kind of who's this, you know, liberal uh, philosopher, marketplace of ideas. You know, we need to just have this open space for a marketplace of ideas so the best idea can win. And he was saying, you know, young people, you don't have a monopoly on truth. You know, you have to be willing to learn, unlike when I was a Maoist, and drawing this uh, parallel between Maoism and wokeism, which which is, you know, interesting in its own way. But again, the thing that was missing, even though he quoted Paul Robeson, you know, I will not retreat one one thousandth of an inch. The ideas, the framework, the contribution of Robson and these Black thinkers—why don't you draw on those? Why don't you use those? You know, because our—I—I I feel like our critique of the woke thing is that it's a—it's a fundamental distortion of the Black freedom struggle,
4: hmm. and that is
3: the purpose—to mislead people and to, uh, yeah, I mean to to take the struggle for racism and the struggle against imperialism and just the struggle for humanity to take that away from the youth and to, 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 to keep it in the um, kind of manager managerial uh, domain of um, these uh, university-educated elites. It's to take it away from the people. Um, and this is something that, that belongs to the people and that is the inheritance of the people. But that's not what Norman Finkelstein was saying. He was very much saying that this is um, to anyone and he, talking about race. Uh, and he, but he, you know he also mentioned like oh we always talked about these questions the woman question the social question the Negro question all of this, but he didn't actually engage with any of these um, frameworks or ways of thinking. So in that sense, it was disappointing. And um, I think also this thing of kind of being a reaction to, in being a reaction, you just go the other way, but you're really not, you're really not actually making a a, a, a substantive critique of a, a very um, destructive ideological um, trend. So I, yeah, that's, that's the sense that I got. Other people that watch the panel can weigh in more. I think, I know Jahan was talking about it. So um, that's what, what I would say, but yeah, met a lot of really, now I understand what you said. Doc. Nice young people, really nice, really curious, you know. Uh, and also, the free school is no is a known entity there. Like I was, oh, oh I'm wow. from a group in Philadelphia. Oh, you're from the free school. Oh, wow! Like I got a lot out of listening to them and the historical memory and all of this. I was like, okay, great. You know, so it's an interesting group of people.
9: I'm I'm less dismissive than I was. That's what I would
4: yeah, say. Yeah, right. I- May, can I ask a
9: question? Yeah. Were you able to ask anybody why they chose the topics they talked about, like why they talked about Maoism and like why they invited Norman Pinkelstein? Like, did you ask anybody?
3: I should have, Serafina. That's a great question. Um, let me let me just pull up the panel description. I think that would be um, uh, that will be more clarifying when I read it because they did say why they wanted to do it. Uh, actually, Danny was talking about it a little bit. He was saying, Yeah, we want to have this intergenerational um, dialogue. So, uh, okay, so wait, with their a... And it's also going on today, so I'm sure we'll have more um, updates tomorrow, uh, next week. Okay, formative for many student radicals who came of age in the 1960s and 70s were the Students for a Democratic Society, the Cultural Revolution, May 1968 in Paris, Revolutions in the Third World, and the 1970s New Communist Movement. For many leftists who sought to engage, critique, and advance these movements, Marxism meant Maoism, which they understood to be an advancement of Marxism-Leninism. Currently, as the left of Generation Z comes of age, a kind of Neo-Maoism is growing more popular, both on college campuses and online. What is Maoism and what is the relationship with Marxism? How did Maoism emerge out of the Chinese revolution? What made Maoism plausible and what makes it possible to appealing today? What may have rendered it implausible? What is the significance of Maoism as a political tendency on the left? And why did Maoism seem in some ways to be more successful than Trotskyism? What has Maoism been and where is it going? How does its history weigh on us today and why should we care about it? And of course, Maoism today means opposing Chinese finance capitalism and you know finance imperialism and how um, CPI, C- Communist Party of in India, Maoist, released a pamphlet talking about how uh, China is the new social imperialism. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I yeah. So make of it what you will. That's kind of where they're coming from
10: um well you know i i saw some of the panel i didn't get to see all of it but uh i i have uh, obviously over the past couple years been listening to uh finkelstein uh and some of the stuff that he sounds like what magna was sharing sounds like it's it's basically he's you know repeating some of the things he said on other podcasts and so on um so well first i wanted to say uh Uh, On this thing of Maoism, it seems to me that the reason they're so interested in it, uh, at the expense of other things, which we would think would be more useful to spend time on, is that uh, because Maoism had such an appeal to the predominantly white Western student uh, movements, and like they mentioned, like they even equated in that thing, the French student movement with revolutions in the third world, Mm -hmm. and that Megan was just reading. Um, And, you know, of course, SDS and all these other movements, and, you know, because their base is also, or their appeal is also to this, you know, uh, people on campuses like University of Chicago. And uh, I think there's there's another trend, which I've also seen on the internet in recent years of like uh, Western leftists who are very... uh, you know, who are, who are not really very interested. Actually, there's a whole ideology where they don't even. It's kind of tied with the settler thing, where they don't even believe that there is a working class in the West or in the U.S. They just, and so they're like, the real working class movement is these very uh, romanticized and flashy, quote-unquote Maoist revolutionary movements, like the Philippines one or the India one. Some of the people of the school of thought were really into that Rojava movement that was happening in Syria at one point. Because You know, you have these pictures of these people with guns and stuff, but you but it's not a very serious approach to the sustained working class movement, whether in the third world uh, or the West. But you see why it has this appeal to the uh, certain sections of the uh, student um, left and so on. Mm-hmm. And yeah. when so then, coming to Finkelstein, I mean I, I've kind of followed him over the years, probably you know, yeah. and uh, I think that he's kind of reached his limits in terms of his ability to understand and contribute to what's happening. I mean, first of all, I don't think he's really reckoned fully with his own past mistakes, like <laughs> he you know he talks about okay, I was a Maoist, then I kind of got into. Essentially, he he talked about how he went to university and he's influenced by Chomsky and so on. And so he became an expert on all these things. He's really into the facts, like whether it's – which to some extent is good, like on Palestine. But it's limited in terms of understanding broader issues. Uh, It's basically an extreme form of empiricism where you believe that uh, the facts tell you everything. And that's kind of where – he's getting into and he I don't think he's seriously reckoned with the color line. I mean, he wants to reduce everyone who talks about the color line to a candy. He wants to kind of bring in Du Bois or Robeson in a very token way just to talk about, oh, okay, they dealt with race. All oh, right, now let's get back to the main theorist. Lux, <laughs> Trotsky, for God's sake, getting into Trotsky. But I mean, it tells you a lot that to understand uh, the crisis in the United States He finds a German from the early 20th century more relevant than uh, great American thinkers like Du Bois. And uh, the other thing is, I don't think I mean, he does definitely, I guess, to compensate for his past Maoism, whatever he has. He still is kind of into a lot of anti-communist stuff. He still is like China's an authoritarian country. Soviet Union is an authoritarian thing. I've even heard him denounce the Syrian government and say it's authoritarian and blah, blah, blah. But on the one hand, so you will dismiss all these projects as authoritarian. And if we try to bring in, like, talk a Robeson or a Du Bois or someone talking positively about it, you'll dismiss them as naive and authoritarian, as I've heard him do in the past. Uh, and similarly, standards will apply if you bring in any intellectual from those societies. But then you could bring in John Stuart Mill, who, for, for the record spent over 20 years as an official of the British East India Company in India. Everyone should know that. Great champion of liberalism and human rights. This is the legacy of Western liberalism. And obviously we're not saying don't read him. Fair enough, read him, critique him, agree or disagree. But you have to put that on the table. So it also tells me a lot that you don't want to read Du Bois.
4: Right.
10: Your foundational figure is going to be a former English East India Company official. Right, I mean, yeah.
3: It's like Du Bois says in the world in Africa, you know, by this lie, humanity was checked, progress, all the, um, all of the achievements of Western civilization are uh, completely compromised and just corrupted because of this basic lie about humanity. So, I mean, that's what you would get from if you read Du Bois, you wouldn't, you would understand a John Stuart Mill, you wouldn't say, oh, I'm going to use his ideas for, you know, but I mean, this is, is this really free speech when it's predicated on just the um, destruction? I mean, yeah, this is this is it's it's an old thing we've talked about. yeah,
10: I mean, he's also I think he's reached a point where he <laughs> uh, well also the thing is he he's he's not interested really in the capacity of the people. I mean, he thinks the greatest you know the best thing was the Bernie movement. Identity <laughs> politics like Megan No was made to wreck the Bernie movement. He's not really, first of all, not taking Bernie to task for the fact that Bernie sold out his own movement. Uh, for the fact that Bernie is basically an imperialist, I don't. I mean, he's a social imperialist, not China. If, and every single imperialist issues is on the wrong side. Also, I think he's basically completely compromised with identity politics. I mean, he was the biggest promoter of AOC and the squad. So I don't really see how identity politics is set up, so to speak, at this point, at least, against the Bernie movement. Maybe initially, at some point, when he when he had some potential, which he's long ago sold out on. Um, and, uh, so he, so he's not really interested in Finkelstein, that is, in the capacity of the American people to struggle. Therefore, he doesn't see the Trump phenomenon. He doesn't see it as a significant thing. I haven't heard him say anything about the peace march that happened. I don't know if he talks about it in the panel, uh, but the, the potential for that. Uh, and so that makes him, uh, very limited in, in what he can offer at this point.
9: Well, I also just wanted to ask a question to the people who listened or attended this year and then because I know that like quite a few of us also attended or listened last year. And I wanted to ask, if any, like, did you guys identify any major ideological shifts in platypus between this year and last year, Mm. like, if at all, you know?
1: This is, um, if I could just suggest something. Um, I I mean, from what I had observed, and I I followed two panels on uh, YouTube, uh, I don't think so. Um, And frankly, I think it is a philosophical, ideological problem. Um, I think the categories of explanation, categories of understanding that they operate from are inadequate to achieve what they want to achieve. Uh, The thing that platypus uh, builds itself upon, I've gathered, is looking back and Looking back to, and I put quotes, the failures of the European working class to bring about a revolution after the October revolution. Um, and and therefore, you know i and Meghna could tell me if this is so, but what I gathered when I was there is that they look at everything through adornos. Category of negative dialectics, um, which I think, I think Adorno, I think Marcusa, uh, I, I, Benjamin, these people in the Frankfurt School are not major thinkers or major figures. But um, I, I don't know how to fully describe them. Uh, however, you know, the authority, let us say, of a Rosa Luxemburg or of a Leon Trotsky. Um, you know, uh, okay, okay. But I, I how do I put it? I mean, I would say, if I were to speak to them again, I would say your categories of understanding are inadequate for this moment. Uh, there is a dialectic of ideas of of the development of science. Humanity did not stop thinking after the October Revolution, thankfully. And of course, uh, Du Bois did not stop thinking, and that's why he's such a critical uh, figure. Uh, But I think and I'd like to go back, I don't want to talk too much this time, but to, one, the um, consideration of Maoism, and also there's a panel on the SWP, the Socialist Workers' Party, and which is a, a reconsideration of Trotskyism in the peace movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement, I think, of the 1960s and 70s. Well, um, or SDS, but they're always looking back to the wrong places. I mean, <laughs> there was a great people's movement that neither the SWP or the Maoists or Finkelstein were part of. In fact, they all um, uh, diminish or just degraded or talk down about them. That. That's why, and I wanna get back to Finkelstein when we get a chance. Finkelstein, and this is where that ultra left always finds itself in something of a racist position relative to the working classes of the oppressed peoples we can we'll return to that, and I don't think Finkelstein has overcome it I mean. Well, we'll we we'll come back to that. But yeah, I don't think they have. And I think unless there is a radical reconsideration of their categories of explanation and understanding, I don't think they can change. And again, the irony is some of the most beautiful people you ever want to meet, young, inexperienced, uh, asking certain questions but I would say in a lot of ways asking the wrong questions.
4: Um, pardon
11: me if this question has already been asked, but I was just curious as to what the um, like fundamental difference between uh, Maoism and Trotskyism is, because obviously these are very different historical figures, um, but they seem to be coming to very similar conclusions, at least in the modern context.
1: <coughs> yeah. Uh, Emil, could we come back to that? I want to come back to that because uh I think I think Johan and, and Megna Very right about this. Um Finkelstein is a uh a representative of a trend from back in that days um that is bigger than him. So but we, when we go back but but i'm I'm interested in his um uh the panel his treatment of oh yeah, I think we already discussed his book uh but let's let's come back to that i want to come back to that that's a very very important question okay, let me just say something let us go go ahead jerry.
2: Well, I guess, we're, were we otherwise talking about, like, Platypus and then Finkelstein and, like, the ultra left and stuff?
1: Yeah. Yes, yes, yes.
2: I think part of...
1: What I was saying is looking mm-hmm. back mm-hmm. to find answers for today's world, but looking back to the wrong things,
4: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: to answer questions for today. Right. I mean, it's just it's a kind of throwed-off thing for me.
2: Yeah, because I think part of my sense of like what is hap, what hap, like what platypus is committed to is, yeah, basically the task of like they consider themselves as taking up the task of like understanding, yeah, the failure of the left, and that is their whole point is to basically by understanding the failure of the left, then it creates a possibility to revive the left, however you understand that to be. And I think, I just feel like we understand the task of today very differently, Mm -hmm. Um, like what we're actually fundamentally committed to. And yeah, I just feel like because yeah, I was like trying to understand this whole negative dialectics thing and I may not have it fully partially because I'm just looking it up, but it feels like, or it seems like their whole, like this whole Adorno, like this whole Adorno formulation of dialectics is one intended to be like like a refutation of of Hegelian dialectics in some ways because Hegel's whole thing is that the negation of the negation produces like a new greater whole, right? Like a new greater unity. And Adorno's thing, it seemed like he was trying to undermine actually that understanding and to say like, actually the point of dialectics is to produce like something, which is not complete. And I don't know if that's like a correct interpretation of the Adorno kind of his the move that he's making, but I feel like, I don't know, like from my exposure to like, whether you call it like critical theory, like that whole school, but also, because I think that part of it is, I, I may be wrong in this, but it feels like part of it is connected to like the kind of postmodern school in some ways. Like, and my experience of that in college was very much like, like it's like the, the kind of rhetorical and psychological moves that they make is, it's like, oh, you thought you understood something, but actually you don't understand it. But, like, that's, like, their whole, like, that's, like, basically the substance of their critique is, like, oh, you thought you understood this thing. But like, actually, like, you don't understand it. And, like, isn't it interesting that, like, we don't understand it? And, like, what is the, like, the kind of um, conclusion that you can draw? Because, actually, this thing that we thought we understood, we all got wrong. And, like, that's, but, like, they're kind of caught in that perpetual mode of being, it's almost like a gotcha, like a gotcha thing, you know? And I just feel like, like from my exposure to that kind of way of thinking in college, it's like, there's nowhere that you really go from there. It's like almost like you're a dog chasing its tail, all like constantly. And I don't know, that may be like, I don't know if that's like the great, like the best interpretation of it, but I just feel like the project that Platypus is committed to, like, I don't know if they even feel like that there is a need to resolve like any of the contradictions that they see or rather the point is rather to like dwell in like the failures to dwell in like this negative knowledge thing um, until something happens. But I don't even know if like they have a picture of what that thing that will happen is, if that makes sense. And yeah, I feel like the other thing that I was thinking about in relation to Finkelstein is actually, it reminds me of the way that people will either reappropriate or basically you like abuse um, either people like Baldwin or Du Bois in order to advance their own ideological agenda. But basically they're looking to people like Du Bois or Baldwin or King essentially to affirm another, like another way of thinking. Like it's, it's similar to like, let's say like, if they wanted to affirm pragmatism, you know, through basically like the pragmatism of someone like Richard Rorty, you know, by referencing du bois but your whole point is to basically affirm someone like richard Rorty, or if you're trying to affirm yeah john stuart mills through du bois but your whole like the it's like you're not able to actually consider these like these thinkers as actually like the ones who actually need to be explored on their own terms and i think that that is like it is one of the weaknesses of finkelstein and something that i feel like he hasn't been able to actually reconcile with um and yeah, I just feel like it's a great disservice to the actual contributions of those thinkers because you're so, inse- like, you actually either don't understand them or you're so insecure in your own understanding that, like, you need to basically use them in order to affirm, like, this other thinker who is greater and larger and is actually, like, a, a more universal thinker compared to someone like Du Bois or Baldwin or King who are more provincial. Um, so, Yeah.
0: Yeah, I wasn't able to watch. So Magna was live texting me for the beginning part of the Wither Maoism panel, and then that's when I realized it was being live streamed. So then I was like, oh, great, let me try to watch this. But what it really reminded what the panel reminded me of, and I actually, I really appreciate the way you described it, Doc, as the assessment being that certain philosophical and ideological categories have reached their limits for the the way the crisis have reached their limits for the crisis today and not just the crisis today but where humanity will and must head and across the world and honestly seeing first off like I just find it kind of jarring to talk about, I know Maoism is an ideology and it's not entirely about Mao, but to me, it is jarring that you have a panel on Maoism and it's like a bunch of white men. I'm sorry, I just have to say it, it does jar, it's a little jarring to me, especially if no one is actually going to talk about the contribution of the Chinese revolution, <laughs> as which is the source of Mao, Maoism, whatever that means, but, It actually did kind of remind me a little bit of Medea Benjamin and Gloria Steinem when they were talking in that documentary about um, North Korea, where in this documentary called Crossings, which some of us attended, someone like Medea Benjamin, who comes from, you know, um, leads Code Pink and, you know, is progressive in in the sense that she's anti-war and she also comes from the anti-Vietnam War movement. Mm -hmm. But when talking about North Korea, she says, yeah, my great hope is that by us promoting peace as foreigners promoting peace on the Korean peninsula, then maybe we can like move the needle of in North Korea more towards democracy, you know? In some ways that's how, what I felt a little, that's what I kind of felt from this panel where there's a sense of like, we are so grappling with the question of Maoism that maybe we can show the source of Maoism in China that they have strayed far from what they should be like. There's a little bit of that. And, you know, which is also, I think, the communist in Indone- the communist in Indonesia example also shows that Meghna talked about. And I feel like that's part of the problem, because when you're philosophical, when you continuously look backwards, it's like I made a joke to people who are in my house on for school, I was like, yeah, I mean that's what Du Bois says. He's like, what are the limits of looking backward when you don't have the pro- when you can when you are unable to look forward. This you know those two chapters in Black Reconstruction where Du Bois says the problem of looking backward when you need when you also need the you need to develop the capacity to look forward. That prophetic capacity which is what led to some of the failures of the white organized left um, back at that time. And I mean, th- those are some of the historical lessons that we as the American people have to like grapple with, and yeah, just this thing of like what happens when your philosophical category, when your philosophic categories, ideological categories, cannot even can no longer even see the people of your country. <laughs> Like, for example, like I want to know how if if these are your philosophic categories and how do you how do you understand? I want to see a panel with the question of like, how do you understand this Trump movement? How do you understand this coalition of the discontent that is emerging like because it kind of it's you can't it's un, you're unable to really view what kind of historical force it may even be because of your current categories like I feel like sometimes I think of the thought experiment where I'm like in 50 years us in 50 years will we look back and say yeah we assessed that right I feel like that's kind of that all that's why we look to Du Bois like Du Bois has that prophetic like intellect I don't know prophetic ideological capacity like and I feel like that's the problem with like constantly because the other thing I realized about platypus of their philosophic foundation is also i i realized that it is this thing of you they ask the same questions every year yeah. <laughs> like if you notice the panels they the yes they repeat the same questions because they're marxist questions like democracy and the left like um, Maoism, Trotsky's—you know, like because the the reasoning behind it is because there's an, there's an, there's a belief that if you ask the same questions every year, the same Marxist questions every year, then maybe the conditions in the world will change enough that your questions meet the moment. But I think that's the wrong approach. Um, I think you have to start with the moment and ask yourself what does what kind of questions is the moment demanding of us and what kind of not like, what kind of knowledge do we need to even understand and ask the right questions in the moment? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, those, but I didn't watch. The thing is, is I didn't, I kind of got so frustrated that I stopped watching actually the Wither Maoism panel. Um, so I do, I actually appreciate a lot your report back, Megna. And I'll, yeah, everyone's, and every, I, and also I think going back to what you said, Doc, I think your assessment was really helpful like to see it in terms of what what are the philosophic and ideological categories? Because I mean, bringing it back to the 10th anniversary, that's why I still to this day, love the theme of the 10th anniversary. And I think there's so much to still do with it, which is we said, we we identified the crisis, the real root problem and thus the solution, which is the crisis of knowledge, knowledge and recapturing the revolutionary spirit for our time. Like, it, I, I see it as really a crisis of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And also, I const- that's why, like, earlier I said, I constantly, I, I always think, constantly ask, like, how is, how is the ruling class purposely trying to, like, distract or poison the well of knowledge? Like, how are they continuously trying to poison that well of knowledge for our, like, for the emerging generations and the youth and the children? Mm-hmm. Um, because if you can do that, then you are damning the people, you're neutralizing the people. But yeah, if there aren't any comments to, I would I would be interested in going to the last chapter of Black Reconstruction, but yeah, go ahead.
1: I just wanted to, um, just on this question, first of all, Emil's question of Maoism and Trotskyism, is there a difference? Um, <clears throat> I think in many ways, no. Uh, Maoism became a... Uh, <clears throat> something far bigger than Mao. Uh, and um, just to, you know, kind of um, from my point of view, recapture that time um, both. Well, first of all, the Maoist denied that there was any democratic tasks to be achieved or that the struggle for democracy was the uh, inevitable and necessary stage in the struggle for a new political economy, for socialism itself. Um, And it was, it took a extreme sectarian position and literally said that we will fight for the people from this extreme position where we're isolated from the people, um, so um, you know, I mentioned that the Maoists, to the extent that they had any influence, did damage, especially for a lot of young people, black and white and Chinese. Uh, it uh, and they did a lot of damage to themselves. I'm, I'm very interested. In in uh, Norman Finkelstein, because I mean he talks about that previous period, but what was the damage that you did to the political struggle? But what damage was done to you by you know shouting these slogans all the time? And he'll you know, and part of his narrative is to talk about how he memorized these slogans, but then he was attacking the struggles of the people, be they for union rights, be they for African-American rights, whatever, whatever, whatever. And then he suddenly abandons it and becomes a follower of, as he calls him, Professor Chomsky. And now he is a bourgeois liberal. You know, I find it disingenuous, at least and maybe, Magna, you can tell us if this occurred, uh, just to talk about these different uh, ideological movements that you were in without being self-critical and ruthlessly self-critical. You did damage. You and people like you did damage to the a uh, working class, especially in, in industrial areas like Detroit, you know, uh, this whole idea of the communist labor party, what was that about? All of these Maoist new party uh, advocates, uh, but nothing about the unity of the people, nothing about the task of democracy, of peace. In fact, I like to ask Finkelstein, did you agree with the Maoist idea that world war could advance the revolutionary process? But that's one side of it. Um, I find a panel where everybody can just say whatever they want to say without the type of um, a deep interrogation or investigation. I find that disingenuous. I find it completely disingenuous. Uh, and of course Finkelstein is, uh, can be a very nasty person, uh, very arrogant. Uh, it's kind of the arrogance of a very smart person, but a very wrong person. And he covers up his arrogance and his failures by trying to over talk people. But then it gets to this book on cancel culture and um, identity politics. And I agree with Meghna. Okay, there are texts that should be uh, investigated, deconstructed, exposed, their contradictions and so on. But that's not a big problem. I mean, you know, you take Ibram Kendi, he's produced nothing of significance. Uh, Now, of course, you can take a deep dive into the text and expose the contradictions, good. Um, But the fact of the matter is who produced Ibram Kendi and why? Why do people like uh, Robin DiAngelo, Ibram Kendi, and others become prominent at a certain moment? Is it just about undoing Bernie Sanders? Or is it about something larger than Bernie Sanders? That the question was, uh, and he he makes the argument, I think it's a, a, I don't think there's much basis for it. First of all, Bernie Sanders was prepared to fight the Hillary Clintons and Joe Bidens and the Democratic Party establishment, only up to a point, Mm
4: -hmm.
1: only up to a point, and then to retreat into the fold of the Democratic neo-con, neoliberal elite under the guise, as he said in 2016, because Trump is a pathological liar. Oh, so you're with Hillary Clinton, who tells the truth against a pat and i'm being facetious who was a truth teller against a quote pathological liar that was so much bs and then in 2020 uh by the way uh his chances were less in 2020 than they were in 2026 because the Democratic Party had already accounted for what he represented. They knew that his base had kind of abandoned him. They were no longer trusting of him as they had in 2016. And so he had very little to go on. And of course, the Democratic Party manipulated all of their assets, etc., etc., etc. Was the game over because you lost the primary? Why did you immediately go out and uh, endorse Joe Biden? And what everyone, at least I kind of sensed or knew, was going to be a war agenda. So it was not, I mean, I think it's a fake claim that identity politics and cancel culture was designed to undermine Bernie Sanders and a working class politics. First of all, I don't think uh, Finkelstein understands what a working class politics is at this stage of a crisis. I don't think he understands it. We are to assume that he does, but, You know, I back to neither side has the adequate categories of understanding to make sense of the world in which we live.
4: Yeah,
3: or, yeah. Uh, yeah <laughs> no, he, he did criticize, when pushed, he did criticize Bernie Sanders for the um, compromise that he made, but he kind of, uh, he justified saying it Saying that Bernie Sanders it was his lesser of two evils. Yeah. That oh, like this would have been better than Trump.
1: No, 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 no. He justified it by saying Bernie Sanders did not want to carry on his shoulders.
3: Yeah. The
1: idea that he elected Trump. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I find that uh, uh, totally um, inadequate as an explanation. There were other options. Bernie Sanders did not fight going forward in 2016 or 2020 or in between for those things that he claimed that he was standing for. He abandoned all of that. And by the way, 13%, it is estimated in 2016, 13% or more of the people that voted for him in the primaries voted for Trump in the general election. And um, and I think so many, he has lost the young people who were such a vital part of his uh, 2016 uh, campaign, lost them. And you know, they've abandoned the idea that Bernie would lead a socialist movement, that this was the appearance of even quote class politics or socialist politics in the mainstream. Well, we now know that that is pure garbage. That Bernie never wanted to lead a socialist movement. In fact, the only thing that he led was his people into the DSA, which is the opposite of a socialist or class politics. Uh, So I find uh, Norman Finkelstein's explanations to be unacceptable because I don't feel that Norman Finkelstein, oh, and he will, he will wax um, uh, uh, poetic talking about how moved he was to be a part of a Black Lives Matter demonstration somewhere. Yeah. But yet you were not a part of the civil rights movement. You were not moved by any of that because you were too arrogant, too, white, to recognize what all of that meant then and what it means today. See, this is the problem. He's just arrogance and the lack of a self-critical, a humbling posture. You were wrong then, you're wrong now, you don't understand what the issues are. Yeah, write a book that is completely based upon a interrogation of texts and not great texts, but an interrogation, I would argue from a wrong ideological philosophical basis. If you want to criticize all of the so-called anti-white supremacist scholarship, you must criticize it from the standpoint of the struggle for black freedom and the ongoingness of it. I don't know that Finkelstein has ever mentioned in the book which I'm reading that the nation is less racist today than it was in the 60s and 70s. That you have to attribute this to the enduring effects of the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King. That if you wanna talk about class politics, Talk about well, let me shut my mouth. You know, it's right. it's all wrong. He's wrong. He comes from a wrong position on everything, but he is too arrogant to be humble enough. Oh, Bernie Sanders, you could, you could identify with Bernie Sanders, but not with the civil rights movement. Huh? It's very interesting, is it? One is white led, other is black. So you have a problem with black leadership, a problem with black leadership. Let's keep it 100, right? You have a problem. You can talk about Rosa Luxemburg and Mao Tung and uh, Leon Trotsky till the cows come home to roost. You, he even said, I've read John Stuart Mill's on Liberty. I read it once. I read it twice. I read it three times. Oh, congratulations. But you never read Black Reconstruction once. In fact, I question whether you even know how to read it. And I would suggest that he would read Black Reconstruction with the arrogance that he brings to most things. He can't understand it.
11: I would I would just to add to that, this idea that, uh, you know, Bernie was uh, undercut by woke and identity politics. And we trust him, like, we can't forget what was Bernie talking about in the context of that, because he he promoted that as much as anybody else. I mean, I can remember him on the debate stage on national television saying how, like, white people couldn't understand what it's like to be poor and impoverished and why he would say something like that at all. Um and constantly contribute to the narrative, whether or not uh, a class of people will use that use that particular tool against him or not is less important than what it is he is representing, I think. I mean, you know, a variety of reasons why a class decides to take someone down or take him down a peg. You could you could just as easily think that perhaps they want people to to go into his direction so that there's no real alternative and then squash it to crush people's hopes. Mm-hmm. But if he's still promoting this idea that's inherently divisive, then he needs to be held to account for that. Like, we can't just say, like, why are we? Why should we be in the position to defend anyone, right? Aren't we talking about principle? Like, that's
6: um,
11: fundamentally, we're talking about how do we unify the people that we have faith in? And that's, that has to come from a good faith argument on principle. That can't be how do we defend Trump or how do we defend Bernie? It's like, well, what are these people advocating? What are they talking about you know, i don't know if i can say i trust trump fully but if he's talking about class mm-hmm. that's a positive thing <laughs> mm-hmm. and i'm going to defend that you know <laughs> mm-hmm. um and that that's coming from you know i think trump's willingness to have good faith in the majority of his base
6: mm-hmm.
11: uh, for whatever reason we want to postulate that is it's neither here nor there really it's it's a question of principle
6: mm-hmm
2: can i read some comments like before we yeah, go? um sophie from earlier in the conversation said um regarding kathy's connection with king's speech mm-hmm. uh, that that's a beautiful connection and thank you todd says the way that magna framed this last week was important saying it went something like quote we have to let the people choose what they want um and then wayne curtis says in relation to our previous discussion about like frameworks of knowledge, um, saying that I understand about our historical development in resistance and its, rec- and its reciprocal form in the capitalist system. I do have a problem understanding, quote, deep, the deep plumbing of capitalism just to contribute to our resistance and, um, and to its political economic culture. I'm still trying to read Du Bois, but always find myself reading other stuff trying to understand the president. Nonetheless, I enjoy this conversation. Um, and then um, DJ Elf said, do you know how compromised the student movement in this country is? Instead of focusing on the corrupt and excessive cost of schools, we focus on bailing out the BS. There are a lot of thought controllers messing up our kids and y'all need to stop trusting your, uh, stop trusting your professors um, or selling off your future for their own comfort. Uh, Don DeBar was asking about um, conferences was, uh, Christopher Romero says, perhaps the student left are impacted by the Western propaganda of how politics is boring. Nobody wants to sit down and negotiate or discuss their own with other views. They want a movie style uprising. And then Colin Clements was asking someone to explain Maoism in this context, which I think we addressed. Um, And then Christopher Romero says, When I first heard about Bernie Sanders, I searched for any information about him. I came across an article with a statement of an old colleague of Bernie who said that Bernie had tossed aside his revolutionary ideas in order to become Senator of Vermont. And I guess he was right after
10: all. Yeah, that actually, that article is actually quite good. I also read it in 2016 because it said that back, I think it was, uh, In 1999, with the U.S. bombing of Yugoslavia, that a bunch of Bernie's former uh, colleagues and comrades uh, tried, you know, talk to him about why are you voting in favor of this bombing, and he didn't listen to them. And then they uh, did a sit-in at his office in protest of the bombing of Yugoslavia, and he and he he actually called the police on them, had them arrested. (laughs) So that was basically a turning point. But I totally agree. I mean. I mean he doesn't he didn't Bernie didn't want to have the weight of electing Trump on his shoulders but he's totally comfortable having the weight of Russia gate, uh, Ukraine war, potential for World War 3, you name it on his shoulders. That's totally fine. And uh, you know w- with w- at the fact that he got so many votes, he could have at least turned a fraction of that into some kind of movement beyond uh, just getting out the vote for other Democrats and electing the squad. He put together no serious movement for Medicare for all for Labor union rights, uh, obviously nothing for peace, nothing like that uh, materialized. And so.
4: Yeah.
2: And I just wanted to add regarding Finkelstein his basic argument is that the BLM, George Floyd protests were a greater working class movement than the civil rights movement, which I think shows a complete misunderstanding of actually the, the way that the class struggle unfolds in the United States. And that is fundamentally what we've been trying to understand with Black Reconstruction. Um, uh, Jeremiah,
1: he actually said that?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's what he's insinuated in different... I think the panel that I saw him on at the Sublation launch event, where he was like, yeah, the, the George Floyd protest was composed of young, disaffected, like, unemployed young people, whereas the civil rights movement was composed of basically like white people like young whites who were like philanthropic in their desire to like help black people and it's like maybe that was your participation or your like whole reality during that time but you've never actually tried to understand the civil rights movement on its own terms and i think that that is a it's not just a finkelstein problem but it's a larger problem amongst many intellectuals or so-called intellectuals and the so-called left where- can
1: I, I, can, I say something, can I just say a small, because I know um, uh, Emile asked about, well, what is the relationship between Maoism and Trotskyism? Well, really now, not just ideas, but practices. Look, let's be 100% real about it. Neither the Trotskyists, that is Socialist Workers Party, or the various Maoist groups saw the civil rights movement as anything but a bourgeois anti revolutionary movement. They felt, uh, and this is why I'm saying, you know, Norman Finkel said, don't just tell me that you shouted Maoist slogans back in the day. Tell me what your thinking was on this great mass, if you want to talk, uprising, known as the Black Freedom Movement, that changed the country and is still changing. Well, what was your relationship to that? Well, I can tell you, for the SWP, it was to use Malcolm against King, that Malcolm was the revolutionary, King was the assimilationist and integrationist. But what was their point? and that's for the Maoists and that's for the SWP. They were trying to replace the organic leadership of the black community with their own because they saw themselves as socialists and revolutionaries and the organic leadership coming from the black community, be it Rosa Parks or King or Abernathy or Ella Baker, or whoever you want to name. These were not revolutionary leaders. And hence, they latch on to Malcolm X because he is a revolutionary leader. The same thing with the Maoists. They attacked the civil rights movement on the grounds that it was not revolutionary. That was the problem with all of these leftist, ultra leftist organizations that proclaim the MOVE organization to be the revolutionary vanguard of black people. It's all a part of a single thread. MOVE was never a revolutionary organization, period, period. And I have many friends in MOVE. I mean, many friends, but you're not revolutionaries. The other thing is this thing of white ultra-leftist organizations proclaiming who is the revolutionary among black people. You're going to see it over and over again, time and time again. It's very uh. I mean demeaning to put to say it's patronizing, to say it's racist, is only to begin to say what it is. That's where they that's where that's what Norman Finkelstein was. You know, uh yeah, he can try to get around it. Well, we believed in the the Negro question and negroes had this right, negroes have that right. But when Negroes rise up on their own behalf, then well, uh The Negro is no longer able to lead himself and needs the leadership of the Trotskyists or the Maoists. That's the way they believed. That's the way they functioned. And it's such, I'll tell you again, black people would always shy away from, they would sense there's something wrong here with the way you're talking to and the way you talk about black people. Just like Finkelstein in this book. All right, you criticizing Kendi, good. He needs to be criticized. But it's something, it's an element in the way you talk about it, that is kind of no black person is qualified to talk about anything seriously because you're just not on the level of we white intellectuals. And so he sets his damn self up as some kind of judge and jury of black people. I wish Magna was still here because to see him perform and when we went up to the sublation thing, I could tell, I sensed it then. I said, this ain't, I mean, this presentation, this way that he positions himself in relationship to black people, you know what I'm saying? It's beyond a criticism of the specific black person. And he's literally saying that black people frankly don't have the capacity to provide leadership for themselves or the nation. That's why you need Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders always is like, he is morally unimpeachable. You can't, cause he's a socialist. Well, Bernie Sanders, it was you who referred to Hugo Chavez of Venezuela as a dead communist dictator. dictator. Where'd that come from? How'd that come out of your mouth, Mr. Socialism? <clears throat> and, and young people are right to abandon him, to try to find an alternative path to socialism and a socialist movement. They're right to do that. Bernie Sanders betrayed them and he's still betraying them. And it was never a working class politics that he was trying to introduce, because if it was such, it would have involved the mass of the black working class.
4: <clears throat> yeah, I'm sorry to bring her up again, but that's, you perfectly also describe.
0: The vibe, even though I know Medea Benjamin doesn't claim is not like whatever, explicitly Trotskyist or like Maoist. There's something about I feel like it's this ultra leftist thing. Like I swear, I that's what I got when Medea Benjamin also talked about North Korea. Where she was like when she said she was saying like your she was saying your like oh my god, what what is the phrase? Like No,
1: no, could I could I suggest something? See this idea that I'm anti? They'll say, "Well, I'm anti-capitalist, but I'm against authoritarianism." So, I'm a, my anti-capitalism ends at the uh, point where I have to take—I have to stand up for democracy. That's Norman, Norman Finkelstein, anti-capitalism, or maybe isn't he? But anti-capitalism until it comes to democracy. I'm for capitalist or bourgeois democracy, but I'm against capitalism. The other side of this is that um, Medea Benjamin and Gloria Steinem and that delegation, at least the two of them, what they were saying is that we want unity and peace on the Korean Peninsula in order to bring about regime change in North Korea. Their biggest criticisms was of the government of North Korea and, of course, the children and the people, but not of the military regime, which is still underpinning the uh, government of South Korea.
4: I mean, it's
3: also the way they look at third world liberation movements. Yeah, you know, they're always undermining them. They're always saying like, "We're the true leftists. We're more to the left," and they give such legitimacy to these irresponsible um, oh, terrorist
1: yeah. groups. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, exaggerate who they are, their importance. <laughs> right, right, right. One
10: right. uh, uh, mention here. I think last year the leader of the philippine revolution in quotes or the who's the head of this uh, maoist movement i think the name is professor jose maria something sassoon died and he had been in exile in europe i think the netherlands for like 30 to 40 years and my only question is why was he in the netherlands this whole time and at one point, the Philippine government actually tried to get him extradited from the Netherlands back, and the European Court of Human Rights blocked it and kept him in the Netherlands. So I, I just want to put that context out there when we talk about this uh, great move. And the other thing is, uh, uh, yeah, I mean this this thing of like Emily was saying earlier, like fetishizing this uh, armed Maoism, and and it, it's also very irresponsible in the context of the Communist Party of China itself has announced Maoism, I mean, as we talked about this earlier with our China conference. So then all these, you're trying to fetishize a certain sectarian reading of uh, China to go against China itself now, to even advocate overthrowing the current Chinese government right. and supporting NATO, which I mean, we've seen this with uh, many people. So, I mean, these are the these are the hard limits of this kind of thinking. I mean, this is why a lot of times, you know, you feel like what is left, with the U.S. left, and should we move, shall we move on to other forces in society that uh, have a much a greater inclination towards peace and uh, restructuring of the economy and the uh, renewal of the people. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, also, and as much as they're talking about the third world, I didn't hear them talk, say anything about the renewal of BRICS. what's happening with that, the de-dollarization, the fulfillment of this great anti-colonial uh, promise and all, all of that so I mean where is uh, humanity in all this?
11: I feel like um, a big part of what um, leads a lot of this thinking is an inability to question history and I guess you know the propaganda of history. Um, I think, um, Yeah, I guess we'll get to that in the reading, so maybe I shouldn't say too much, but I just think about how in Ukraine, you know, one of the first things that the new regime that was installed by the U.S. government did was try to change all of the history in that country to basically start from a perspective of not having any relationship with Russia and being constituted their own people. Um, And that was a way to sort of get inculcated in the consciousness of those people a division and similarly, you know, we've heard of, um, I remember Pastor Lee talking about how he was raised in South Korea to only recognize North Koreans by their horns and their, you know, their red skin and their their fangs. <laughs> um, and similarly, I think in Taiwan, Taiwan separatist government there that's supported by the United States government um, tries to teach the Taiwanese that they're not really a part of China and their history started in 1949 and to forget the rest of that history or to take For granted that history, um, which I think is in part why we stress so much the importance of history and how that really helps shape our ability to see clearly through everything else uh, that, that, that seems to be disuniting people all over the world.
0: Well, if there aren't any more comments. Um, what do you think of moving to Black Reconstruction? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited. I'm really excited to go back to Black Reconstruction because, um, especially, it kept coming up throughout today. Our understanding of history, but also, I feel like specifically Du Bois and the philosophy and like the science that you get when you read Du Bois's Black Reconstruction. And how he's understanding that time period but um here i can give you guys my book if you want but i'm going to share it on the screen maybe does does someone want to read mm, yes I knew, yes i knew we would have one passionate reader <laughs> <Seraphina>. <laughs> but oh, so we can start we can start with the propaganda history but just saying that there are some great passages at the end of Back Towards Slavery, if we wanted to give some context before we go into propaganda history, but Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think, Doc and Serafina?
1: Go ahead, whatever you think, uh, Emily. Mm -hmm.
0: Maybe we should just, I think maybe we should just read propaganda history.
1: Um, Could I just ask, um, you know, maybe we've read this before, you see, the paragraph on page 706: democracy in the South and in the United States is hampered by the Southern attitude. Yes,
0: yes, yes.
1: You know, this is this is very important because this links Du Bois to, to the civil rights movement of the 60s, because the idea of King and Du Bois, you win the South, you can win the nation.
6: Mm-mm-mm.
1: You defeat the forces of white supremacy and reaction in the South, you free the working class generally. But maybe we could just read that and um, um and then maybe uh, maybe we can then go on to propaganda of history if you if you don't mind. Maybe yeah. we, maybe we could just go to pop propaganda of history.
0: No, I no, okay. I'm going I'm I'm reverting back to my original desire, which is I wanna read the last pages of Back Towards Slavery and then go to the propaganda of history. But can we start on page like the top of page seven oh six? So that's a few paragraphs before the mm-hmm. before the paragraph that you pointed out.
7: Okay,
0: go ahead. So maybe I'll read the end of Back Towards Slavery and then Serafina, you read propaganda of history.
6: <laughs>
0: okay, so I'm going to present my screen. Let
4: me say entire screen.
0: Okay, so the top of page 706 for people who have the copy with the white cover. But starting with, okay, it is a cheap inheritance. Maybe I should start at the really bottom of 705. Um. <clears throat> okay, the wide distortion of facts. I'm going to start there at the bottom of page 705. The wide distortion of facts which became prevalent in the white South during and after Reconstruction as a measure of self-defense has never been wholly crushed since. For years, Southerners denied that there was any fraud in cheating in elections. Henry Grady stood in Boston and told New England that the Negro was as free to vote in the South as the white laborer was in the North. Booker T. Washington repeatedly testified as to the goodwill and essential honesty of purpose of Southerners and put the whole burden of responsibility for advance upon the Negro himself. Quote, the Southern white man is the Negro's best friend, scream all the Southern papers, even today. And this in the face of the open record of 5,000 lynchings, jails bursting with black prisoners, incarcerated on trivial and trumped up charges, and cast staring from every train and streetcar. This whole phantasmagoria has been built on the most miserable human fictions, that in addition to the manifest differences between men, there's a deep, awful, and ineradicable cleft which condemns most men to eternal degradation. It is a cheap inheritance of the world's infancy, unworthy of grown folk. My rise does not involve your fall. No superior has interest in inferiority. Humanity is one and its vast variety is its glory and not its condemnation. If all men make the best of themselves, if all men have the chance to meet and know each other, the result is the love born of knowledge and not the hate based on ignorance. Mm The results of this upon the higher life in the South is extraordinary. Fundamentalism rules in religion because men hesitate openly to reason about the golden rule. Literature, art, and music are curiously dominated by the Negro. The only literature the South has had for years is based largely upon the Negro. Southern music is Negro music. Yet, Negroes themselves are seldom recognized as interpreters of art, and white artists must work under severe social limitations and at second hand. They thus lack necessary sincerity, depth, and frankness. Democracy in the South and in the United States is hampered by the Southern attitude. The Southerner, by winning the victory, which the 14th Amendment tried to deny, uses the Negro population as a basis of his political representation and allows few Negroes to vote. So mu- so that the white Southerner marches to the polls with many times as much voting power in his hand as the voter in the North. Mm. The South does and must vote for reaction. There can be, therefore, neither in the South nor in the nation, a successful third party This is proven in the case of Theodore Roosevelt and La Follette. Follette. A solid block of reaction in the South can always be depended upon to unite with Northern conservatism to elect a president. One can only say to all this that whatever the South gains through its victory in the revolution of 1876 has been paid for at a price which literally staggers humanity. Mm. Imperialism, the exploitation of colored labor throughout the world, thrives upon the approval of the United States. And the United States gives that approval because of the Southern, because of the South. <laughs> world War waits on and supports imperial aggression and international jealousy. This was too great a price to pay for anything which the South gained. Yeah, this is this is the line that I I always remember. I mean, I think it is I don't know how Du Bois could in just one sentence explain that that connection between the South. But he's basically saying the failure of the um, the downfall of the dictatorship of the black proletariat in the South. It damns the nation. And because it damns the nation, it's what allows it's the approval with which imperialism is built upon. And imperialism is the exploitation of colored labor throughout the world. Like, I love that imperialism, the exploitation of colored labor throughout the world, thrives upon the approval of the United States. And the United States gives that approval because of the South. And that's also why King, why the third American revolution led by King, the big task that King by the end of his life realizes is of the American people and thus him is imperialism. That was why he came. That's why he said three evils. Militarism, um, racism, and poverty. Like he, the civil rights movement was dealing with the democratic demand of, like, no more war. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's anything else you want to say, Doc. Before I keep reading, oh. I also can't see your face, so I don't. I can't read your.
1: Body um, no, I'm just, it's so beautiful, but go ahead, man. Okay. You know, again, to capture. That moment required great literary and artistic skill to see the crisis produced, and this is the point I think Du Bois made: the counter revolution of seven of eighteen seventy six
4: mm-hmm.
1: produces a crisis for world humanity, for the labor movement worldwide. Mm-hmm. It it thus gives life to U.S. imperialism. I think this is the most cogent and important part of it. That's all I would say.
0: The chief obstacle in this rich realm of the United States, endowed with every natural resource and with the abilities of a 100 different peoples, the chief and only obstacle to the coming of that kingdom of economic equality, which is the only logical end of work, is the determination of the white world to keep the black world poor and themselves rich a clear vision of a world without inordinate individual wealth of capital without profit and income and of income based on work alone is the path out not only for america but for all men across this path stands the south with flaming sword mm-hmm. mm. Of course, it would be humanly impossible for any such regime to be completely successful anywhere without protest and reaction from within. Elms giving to Negroes in the South has always been almost universal. Even petty pilfering has been winked at. Beyond this, and of far greater social significance, have been the personal friendships between Blacks and whites, with aid and advice, even at great pecuniary and spiritual costs. Large-hearted Southern white men and women have in unnumbered cases quietly and without advertisement done enormous work to make life bearable and success possible for thousands of Negroes. Most of the benevolence of this sort, however, has been of a personal and individual matter. And only a minority of cases have such Southern white people been willing to stand on principle and demand for all Negroes, rights as men, and treatment according to desert. When in according to desert 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 when in some cases such opinion and clear advocacy has been made and has consequently evoked the usual social punishment it is singular and almost peculiar to the south how seldom southern whites have had the courage to stand up and suffer for righteousness sake against the mass terror of public opinion in the south the iconoclast the martyr not only on the Negro question, but on other moral matters, have been conspicuously conspicuously absent. And where they have arisen, they have soon either subsided into silence or retreated to the m- more tolerant atmosphere of the North, leaving the South all the poorer and all the more easily hammered into, conform- into conformity with the mob. If white and black in the South were free and intelligent, there would be friendship and some intermarriage, And there ought to be, but none would marry where he did not wish to. And there could be no greater intermingling in the future than in the shameful past, unless this union of races proved successful and attractive. The revolution of 1876 was in fine a victory for which the South has every right to hang its head. After enslaving the Negro for two and one half centuries, it turned on his emancipation to beat a beaten man, to trade in slaves, to kill the defenseless, to break the spirit of the Black man and humiliate him into hopelessness, to establish a new dictatorship of property in the South through the color line. It was a triumph of men who, in their effort to replace equality with caste and to build inordinate wealth on the foundation of abject poverty, have succeeded in killing democracy, art, and religion. I mean, that paragraph is, I think, the a perfect description of the downfall of Reconstructionist implications. Um, okay, moving on. And yet, despite this, and despite the long step backward towards slavery that Black folk have been pushed, they have made withal a brave and fine fight, a fight against ridicule and monstrous caricature, against every refinement of cruelty and gross insult, against starvation, disease, and murder in every form. It has left in their soul its scars, its deep scars. But when all is said, through it all has gone a thread of brave and splendid friendship from those few and rare men and women of white skins, North and South, who have dared to know and help and love Black folk. The unending tragedy of reconstruction is the utter inability of the American mind to grasp its real significance. Its national and worldwide implications. It was vain for Sumner and Stevens to hammer in the ears of the people that this problem involved the very foundations of American democracy, both political and economic. We are still too blind and infatuated to conceive of the emancipation of the laboring class in half the nation as a revolution comparable to the upheavals in France in the past and in Russia. Spain, India, and China today. We were worried when the beginnings of this experiment cost 18 millions of dollars and quite aghast when a debt of 225 millions was involved including waste and theft. We apparently expected that this social upheaval was going to be accomplished with peace, honesty, and efficiency. And that the planters were going quietly to surrender the right to live on the labor of black folk after 250 years of habitual exploitation. And it seems to America a proof of inherent race inferiority that four million slaves did not completely emancipate themselves in 80 years in the midst of nine million bitter enemies and indifferent public opinion of the whole nation if the reconstruction of the southern if the reconstruction of the southern states from slavery to free labor and from aristocracy to industrial democracy had been conceived as a major national program of america whose accomplishment at any price was well worth the effort we should be living today in a different world <laughs> the attempt to make black men american citizens was in a certain sense all a failure but a splendid failure. It did not fail where it was expected to fail. It was th- It was Athanasius <laughs> Contramundum, with back to the wall, outnumbered 10 to one, with all the wealth and all the opportunity and all the world against him. And only in his hands and heart of the consciousness and, o- and only in his hands and heart, the consciousness of a great and just cause, fighting the battle of all the oppressed and despised humanity of every race and color against the mass tirelings of religion, science, education, law, and brute force. For he has appalled this wretched man, such as few men can claim. Deep down below a prison yard, naked for greater shame, he lies with fetters on each foot, wrapped in a sheet of flame. Mm. The wild. Wow. Ooh, so, so. so, yeah, that was, those Those are great pages in fact towards slavery. Um, and I feel like it's a good, it also helps. I think it'll be good, um, it'll be a good place, to, uh, good context for starting propaganda of history. Um, Is it okay if we go directly to Propaganda of History? Okay. So I'm going to mute myself and then share my screen, but I'll let you read Serafina.
4: Hmm. waiting for her to share her screen. Mm
9: -hmm. Okay. The Propaganda of History. How the facts of American history have in the last half century been falsified because the nation was ashamed. The South was ashamed because it fought to perpetuate human slavery. The North was ashamed because it had to call in the black man to save the union, abolish slavery and establish democracy. What are American children taught today about reconstruction? Helen Boardman has made a study of current textbooks and notes these three dominant theses. One, all Negroes were ignorant. All were ignorant of public business. Although the Negroes were now free, they were also ignorant and unfit to govern themselves. The Negroes got control of these states. They had been slaves all their lives and were so ignorant they did not even know the letters of the alphabet. Yet they now s- sat in the state legislators and made the laws. In the South, the Negroes who had so suddenly gained their freedom did not know what to do with it. In the legislators, the Negroes were so ignorant that they could only watch their white leaders, carpetbaggers, and vote a or no, as they were told. Some legislators were made up of a few dishonest men and several Negroes, many too ignorant to know anything about lawmaking. Two, all Negroes were lazy, dishonest and extravagant. Quote, these men knew not only nothing about the government but they also cared for nothing except what they could gain for themselves by Helen F. Giles, how the United States became a world power. Quote, legislators were often at the mercy of the Negroes, childishly ignorant, who sold their votes openly and whose loyalty was gained by allowing them to drink, eat, and clothe themselves at the state's expense. America, a history of our country, quote, some negroes spent their money foolishly and were worse off than they had been before in the history of America. This assistance led many freedmen to believe that they no longer they need no longer work. They also ignorantly believed that the lands of their former masters were to be turned over by Congress to them and that every negro was to have as his allotment, 40 acres and a mule in the history of the United States, part two. Quote, thinking that slavery meant toil and that freedom meant only idleness, the slave after he was set free was disposed to try out his freedom by refusing to work in advanced American history. Quote, they began to wander about stealing and plundering. In one week, in a Georgia town, 150 Negroes were arrested for thieving. In how the United States became a world power. And three, Negroes were responsible for bad government during reconstruction. Quote, foolish laws were passed by the black lawmakers. The public money was wasted terribly and thousands of dollars were stolen straight, self-respecting Southerners chaffed under the horrible regime in these United States, and quote, in the exhausted states, already amply punished by the desolation of war, the rule of the Negro and his unscrupulous carpetbagger and scalawag patrons was an orgy of extravagance, fraud, and Discussing Incompetency, found in History of the American People. Du Bois quotes that the picture of reconstruction, which the average pupil in the 16 states received is limited to the South. The South found it necessary to pass black codes for the control of the shiftless and sometimes vicious freedmen. The Freedmen's Bureau caused the Negroes to look to the North rather than to the South for support and by giving them a false sense of equality did more harm than good. With the scalawags, the ignorant and non-property holding Negroes under the leadership of the carpetbaggers engaged in a wild orgy of spending spending in the legislators. The humiliation and distress of the Southern whites was in part relieved by the Ku Klux Klan A secret organization which frightened the superstitious Blacks." Grounded in such elementary and high school teaching, an American youth attending college today would learn from current textbooks of history that the Constitution recognized slavery, that the chance of getting rid of slavery by peaceful methods was ruined by the abolitionists, that after the period of Andrew Jackson, the two sections of the United States had become fully conscious of the conflicting interests. Two irreconcilable forms of civilization in the North, the Democratic, in the South, the more stationary and aristocratic civilization. He would read that Harriet Beecher Stowe brought on the Civil War, that the assault on Charles Sumner was due to his quote unquote coarse invective against a South Carolina senator that the ne- that, and that Negroes were the only people to achieve emancipation with no effort on their part. <laughs> that reconstruction was a disgraceful attempt to subject white people to ignorant Negro rule. And that according to a Harvard professor of history, the, Itali- the italics are ours, quote, legislative expenses, expenses were grotesquely extravagant. The colored members in some states engaging in a Saturnalia of corrupt expenditure. In other words, he would in all probability complete his education without any idea of the part which the black races played in America, of the tremendous moral problem of abolition, of the cause and meaning of the civil war and the relation which Reconstruction had to the democratic government and the labor movement today.
4: Hmm.
9: Herein lies more than mere omission and difference of emphasis. The treatment of the period of Reconstruction reflects small credit upon American historians as scientists. We have too often a deliberate attempt so to change the facts of history that this story will make a pleasant reading for Americans. The editors of the 14th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica asked me for an article on the history of the American Negro. For my manuscript, they cut out all my references to reconstruction. I insisted on including the following statement. While, or sorry, white historians have ascribed the faults and failures of reconstruction to Negro ignorance and corruption. But the Negro insists that it was Negro loyalty and the Negro vote alone that restored the South to the union, established the the new democracy, both for white and black, and instituted the public schools. This, the editor refused to print, although he said that the article otherwise was In my judgment and in the judgment of others in the office, an excellent one and one with which it seems to me, we may be all be well satisfied. I was not satisfied and refused to allow the article to appear. War and especially civil strife leave terrible wounds. It is the duty of humanity to heal them. It was therefore soon conceived as neither wise nor patriotic to speak all of all the causes of strife and the terrible results to which sectional differences in the United States have led and so first of all, we minimize the slavery controversy which convulsed the nation from the Mis, Mis, Missouri compromise, compromise down to the Civil War on top of that. We pass by Reconstruction with a phrase of regret or disgust. But are these reasons of courtesy and philanthropy sufficient for denying truth? Hmm. If history is going to be scientific, if the record of human action is going to be set down with the accuracy and faithfulness of detail, which will allow its use as a measuring rod and guidepost for the future of nations, there must be set some standards of ethics in research and interpretation. If, on the other hand, we are going to use history for our pleasure and amusement, for inflating our national ego and giving us a false but pleasurable sense of accomplishment, then we must give up the idea of history, either as a science or as an art, using the results of science and frankly, and admit frankly, that we are using a version of historic fact in order to influence and educate the new generation along the way we wish. It is propaganda like this that has led men in the past to insist that history is quote unquote lies agreed upon and to point out the danger in such misinformation. It is indeed extremely doubtful if any permanent benefit comes to the world through such action. Nations reel and stagger on their way. They make hideous mistakes. They commit frightful wrongs. They do great and beautiful things. And shall we not best guide humanity by telling the truth about all this, so far as the truth is ascertainable? Here in the United States, we have a clear example. It was morally wrong and economically retrogressive to build human slavery in the United States in the 18th century. We know that now perfectly well, and there were many Americans North and South who knew this and said it in the 18th century. Today, in the face of new slavery established elsewhere in the world under other names and guises, we ought to emphasize this lesson of the past. Moreover, it is not well to be reticent in describing that past. Our histories tend to discuss American slavery so impartially that in the end, nobody seems to have done wrong and everybody was right. (laughs) Slavery appears to have been thrust upon unwilling helpless America while the South was blameless and becoming its center. The difference of development North and South is explained as a sort of working out of, of cosmic social and economic law. One reads, for instance, Charles and Mary Beard's rise of American civilization with a comfort feeling that nothing wrong or right is involved. Manufacturing and industry develop in the north, agrarian feudalism develops in the south. They clash as winds and water strive and the stronger forces develop the tremendous industrial machine that governs us so magnificently and selfishly today. Yet, in this sweeping mechanistic interpretation, there is no room for the real plot of the story, for the clear mistake and guilt of rebuilding a new slavery of the working class in the midst of a faithful experiment in democracy, for the triumph of sheer moral courage and sacrifice in the abolition crusade, and for the hurt and struggle of degraded black millions in their fight for freedom and their attempt to enter democracy. Can all this be omitted or half-suppressed in a treatise that calls itself scientific? Or to come near, near the center and climax of this fascinating history, what was slavery in the United States? Just what did it mean to the owner and the owned? Shall we accept the conventional story of the old slave plantation and its owner's fine aristocratic life of cultured le- uh, leisure? leisure. Or shall we note slave biographies like those of Charles Ball, Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, the careful observations of Olmstead and the indictment of Hilton Helper? No one can read that first thin autobiography of H- Frederick Douglass and have left many illusions about slavery. And if truth is our object, no amount of flowery romance and the personal reminiscences of its protected beneficiaries can keep the world from knowing that slavery was a cruel, dirty, costly and inexcusable anachronism, which nearly ruined the world's greatest experiment in democracy. No serious and unbiased student can be deceived by the fairy tale of a beautiful Southern slave civilization. If those who really had opportunity to know the South before the war wrote the truth, it was a center of widespread ignorance, undeveloped resources, suppressed humanity, and unrestrained passions with whatever veneer of manners and culture could lie that could lie above these depths. Coming now to the Civil War, how for a moment Can anyone who reads the Congressional Globe from 1850 to 1860, the lives of contemporary statesmen and public characters, North and South, the discourses in the newspapers and accounts of meetings and speeches, doubt that Negro slavery was the cause of the Civil War? What do we gain by evading this clear fact and talking in vague ways about union and state rights and differences in civilization as the cause of that catastrophe? Of all historic facts, there can be none clearer than that for four long and fearful years, the South fought to perpetuate human slavery. And that the nation which rose so bright and fair and died so pure of stain was one that had a perfect right to be ashamed of its birth and glad of its death yet one monument in North Carolina achieves the impossible by recording of Confederate soldiers they died fighting for liberty on the other hand consider the north and the and the civil war why should we be deliberately false like Woodward in meet the general meet general grant and represent the north as magnanimously magnanimously freeing the slave without any effort on his part. The American Negroes are the only people in the history of the world, so far as I know, that ever became free without any effort on their own. (laughs) They had not started the war nor ended it. They twanged banjos around the railroad stations, sang melodious spirituals, and believed that some Yankee would soon come along and give each of them 40 acres of land and a mule. The North went to war without the slightest idea of freeing the slave. The great majority of Northerners from Lincoln down pledged themselves to protect slavery, and they hated and harried abolitionists. But on the other hand, the thesis which Beale tends to support that the whole North during and after the war was chiefly interested in making money is only half true. It was abolition and belief in democracy that gained for a time the upper hand after the war and led the North in reconstruction. Business followed abolition in order to maintain the tariff, pay the bonds and defend the banks. To call this business program the program of the North and ignore abolition is unhistorical. The growing ascendancy for a calculable time was a great moral movement, which turned the North from its economic defense of slavery and led it to emancipation. Abolitionists attacked slavery because it was wrong and their moral battle cannot be truthfully minimized or forgotten. Nor does this fact deny that the majority of Northerners before the war were not abolitionists, that they attacked slavery only in order to win the war and enfranchise a Negro to secure this result. One has but to read the debates in Congress and state papers from Abraham Lincoln down to know that the decisive action which ended the Civil War was the emancipation and arming of the black slave that as Lincoln said, without the military help of the black freedmen, the war against the South could not have been won. The freedmen, far from being the inner recipients of freedom at the hands of philanthropists, furnished 200,000 soldiers in the Civil War who took part in nearly 200 battles and skirmishes. And in addition, perhaps 300,000 others as effective laborers and helpers, in proportion to population, more Negroes than whites fought in the Civil War. These people, withdrawn from the support of the, of the Confederacy, with threat of the withdrawal of millions of more, made the opposition of the slaveholder useless unless they themselves freed and armed their own slaves. This was exactly what they started to do. They were only restrained by realizing that such action removed the very cause for which they began fighting. (laughs) Yet one would search current American histories almost in vain to find a clear statement or even faint recognition of these perfectly well-authenticated facts. All this is but preliminary to the kernel of the historic problem with which this book deals, and that is Reconstruction. The chorus of agreement concerning the attempt to reconstruct and organize the South after the civil war and emancipation is overwhelming. There is, a, there is scarce a child in the street that cannot tell you that the whole effort was a hideous mistake and an unfortunate incident based on ignorance, revenge, and the perverse determination to attempt the impossible. That the history of the United States between 1866 to 1876 is something of which the nation ought to be ashamed and which did not or did more to retard and set back the American Negro than anything that has happened to him. While at the same time, it grievously and wantonly wounded again, a part of the nation already hurt to death. True it is that the Northern historians write writing just after the war had scant sympathy for the South and wrote ruthlessly of rebels and slave drivers, they had at least the excuse of war psychosis. As a young labor leader, Will Herberg writes, the great traditions of this period and especially of reconstruction are shamelessly repudiated,
4: repudiated,
9: repudiated by the official heirs of Stevens and Sumner. In the last quarter of a century, hardly a single book has appeared consistently championing or sympathetically interpreting the great ideals of the crusade against slavery, whereas scores and hundreds have dropped from the presses in ignoble extenuation of the North. in open apology for the Confederacy and measureless abuse of the radical figures of reconstruction. The reconstruction period as the logical culmination of decades of previous development has borne the brunt of the reactions. First of all, we have James Ford's Rhodes history of the United States. Rhodes was not trained as a historian, but as an Ohio businessman. He had no broad formal education. When he had accumulated a fortune, he surrounded himself with a retinue of clerks and proceeded to manufacture a history of the United States by mass production. His method was simple. He gathered a vast number of th- vast number of authorities. He selected from these authorities those whose testimony supported his thesis, and he discarded the others. The majority report of the great Ku Klux investigation, for instance, he laid aside in favor of the minority report simply because the latter supported his sincere belief. In the report and testimony of the Reconstruction Committee of 15, he did practically the same thing. Above all, he begins his inquiry convinced without admitting any necessity of investigation that Negroes are an inferior race, quote, no large policy in our country has ever been so conspicuous a failure as that of forcing universal Negro suffrage upon the South? The Negroes who simply acted out their nature were not to blame. How indeed could they acquire political honesty? What idea could barbarism thrust into slavery obtain the rights of property? <clears throat> From the Republican policy came no good, no real good to the Negroes. Most of them developed no political capacity and the few who raised themselves above the mass did not reach a high order of intelligence, End quote. Rhodes was primarily the historian of property <laughs> of economic history and the labor movement. He knew nothing of democratic movement, government. He was contemptuous. He was trained to make profits. He used his profits to write history. He speaks again and again of the rulership of intelligence and property, and he makes a plea that intelligent use of the ballot for the benefit of property is the only real foundation of democracy. The real frontal attack on reconstruction as interpreted by the leaders of national thought in 1870, and for some time thereafter, came from the universities and particularly from Columbia and John Hopkins. The movement began with Columbia University and the advent of John W. Burgess of Tennessee and William A. Dunning of New Jersey as professors of political science and history. Burgess was an ex Confederate soldier who started to a little Southern, or ex soldier who started to a little Southern college with a books, with a box of books a box of tallow candles and a Negro boy. And his attitude toward the Negro race in after years was subtly colored by this conception of Negroes as essentially property like books and candles. Mm. Dunning was a kindly and impressive professor who, who was deeply influenced by a growing group of young Southern students and began, to, began with them to rewrite the history of the nation of 1860 to 1880 in more or less conscious opposition to the classic interpretations of New England. Burgess was frank and determined in his anti-Negro thought. He expanded his theory to Nordic supremacy, which colored all his political theories. Quote, the claim that there is nothing of the, in the color of the skin from the point of view of political ethics is a great sophism. A black skin means membership in a race of men, which has never in of itself succeeded in subjecting passion to reason and has never therefore created any civilization of any kind. To put such a race of men in possession of a state government in a system of federal government is to trust them with the development of political and legal civilization upon the most important subjects of human life. And to do this in communities of a large white population is simply to establish barbarism in power over civilization. Burgess is a Tory, an apostle of reaction. He tells us that the nation now believes that it is the white man's mission, his duty and his right to hold the reins of political power in his own hands for the civilization of the world and welfare of mankind. For this reason, America is following the European idea of the duty of civilized races to impose their political sovereignty upon the civilized or half civilized or not fully civilized races anywhere and everywhere in the world. He complacently believes that there is something natural in the subordination of an an inferior race to a superior race, even to the point of the enslavement enslavement of the inferior race, but there is nothing natural in the opposite. He therefore dominates reconstruction as the rule of the uncivilized Negroes over the whites of the South. This has been the teaching of one of our greatest universities for nearly 50 years. Dunning was less less dogmatic as a writer and his own statements were often judicious. But even Dunning can declare that all forces in the South that made for civilization were dominated by a mass of barbarous freedmen and that the antithesis and antipathy of race and color were crucial and eradicable. The work of most of the students whom he taught and encouraged had been one-sided and partisan to the last degree. John Hopkins University has issued a series of studies similar to Columbia's. Southern teachers have been welcomed to many Northern universities, where often Negro students have been systematically discouraged and thus a nationwide university attitude has arisen by which propaganda against the Negro has been carried on unquestioned. The Columbia School of Historians and Social Investigators have issued between 1895 and the present time, 16 studies of reconstruction in the Southern States, all based on the same thesis and all done according to the same method. First, endless sympathy with the white South. Second, ridicule, contempt, or silence for the Negro. Third, a judicial attitude towards the North, which concludes that the North under great misapprehension did a grievous wrong, but eventually saw its mistake and retreated. These studies vary, of course, in their methods. Dunning's own work is usually silent so far as the Negro is concerned. Burgess is more than fair in law, but reactionary in matters of race and property regarding the treatment of of a Negro as a man, as nothing less than a crime and admitting that the mainstay of property is in the courts. In the books on reconstruction written by graduates of these universities and others, the studies of Texas, North Carolina, Florida, Virginia and Louisiana are thoroughly bad, giving no complete picture of what happened during reconstruction, written for the most part by men and women without broad historical or social background and all designed not to seek the truth, but to prove a thesis. Hamilton reaches the climax of the school when he characterizes the black codes, which even Burgess condemned, as not only on the whole reasonable, temperate and kindly, but in the main necessary. Thompson's Georgia is another case in point. It seeks to be fair, but silly stories about Negroes indicating utter lack of even common sense are included in every noble sentiment from white people. When two Negro workers, William and Jim, put a straightforward advertisement in the local paper, the author says that it was evidently written by a white friend, there was not even there was, There is not the slightest historical evidence to prove this. And there were plenty of educated Negroes in Augusta and at the time, who might have written this. Lawns, Louisiana, put Sheridan's words in Sherman's mouth to prove a petty point. There are certain of these studies, which though influenced by the same general attitude, nevertheless have a more have more of a scientific poise and cultural background. Garner's reconstruction in Mississippi conceives the Negro as an integral part of the scene and treats him as a human being. With this should be bracketed the recent study of reconstruction in South Carolina by Simkins and Woody. This is not as fair as Garner's, but in the midst of conventional judgment and conclusion and reproductions of all available caricatures of Negroes, it does not hesitate to give a fair account of the negroes and of some of their work it gives the impression of combining in one book two antagonistic points of view but in the clash much truth emerge emerges thicklands louisiana and the works of fleming are anti-negro in spirit but nevertheless they have a certain fairness and sense of historic honesty fleming's documentary history of reconstruction is done by a man who has a thesis to support and his selection of documents support his thesis. His study of Alabama is pure propaganda. Next come a number of books which are openly and blatantly propaganda like Herbert's Solid South and the books by Pike and Reynolds on South Carolina, the works by Pollard and Carpenter and especially those by Ulrich Phillips. One of the latest and most popular of these series is The Tragic Era by Cloud Bowers, which is an excellent and readable piece of current newspaper reporting, absolutely <laughs> devoid of historic judgment or sociological knowledge. It is a classic example of historic, historical propaganda of the cheaper sort. We have books like Milton's Age of Hate and Winston's Andrew Johnson, which, have, which attempt to rewrite the character of Andrew Johnson. They certainly add to our knowledge of the man and our sympathy for his weaknesses. But they cannot for students change the calm testimony and unshaken historical facts. Fwess' Carl Short paints the picture of this fine liberal, and yet goes out of its way to show that he was quite wrong in what he saw in the South. The chief witness in Reconstruction, the emancipated slave himself has been almost barred from court his written reconstruction record had been largely destroyed and nearly always neglected only 3 or 4 states have preserved the debates in the reconstruction conventions there are few biographies of black leaders the negro was refused a hearing because he was poor and ignorant it was therefore assumed that all negroes in reconstruction were ignorant and silly and that therefore a history of reconstruction in any state can quite ignore him The result is that most unfair caricatures in Negroes have been carefully preserved, but serious speeches, successful administration and upright character are almost universally ignored and forgotten. Wherever a black head rises to historic view, it is probably slain by an adjective, shrewd, notorious, cunning, or pillared by by a sneer. Are put out of view by some quite unproven charge of bad moral character. In other words, every effort has been made to treat the Negroes' part Reconstruction with silence and contempt. When recently a student tried to write an oath or uh, write on education in Florida, he found that the official records of the excellent administration of the colored superintendent of education, Gibbs, who virtually established the Florida public school. Had been destroyed. Alabama has tr- tried to obliterate all printed records of Reconstruction. Especially noticeable is the fact that little attempt has been made to trace carefully the rise and economic development of the poor whites in their relation to the planters and to Negro labor after the war. There were 5 million or more non slaveholding whites in the South in 1860, and less than 2 million in the families of all slaveholders. Yet one might almost gather from contemporary history that the five million left no history and had no (laughs) descendants. The extraordinary history of the rise and, and, uh, and triumph of the poor whites has been largely neglected even by Southern white students. The whole development of reconstruction was primarily an economic development but not economic history or proper material for it has been re- has been written it has been regarded as a purely political matter and a politics most naturally divorced from industry all this re- is reflected in the textbooks of the day and the encyclopedias until we have gotten we have got to the place where we cannot use our experiences during and after the civil war for the uplift and enlightenment of mankind. We have spoiled and misconceived the position of a historian. If we are going in the future, not simply with regard to this one question, but with regard to all social problems, to be able to use human experience for the guidance of mankind, we have got clearly to distinguish between fact and desire. In the first place, somebody in each era must make clear the facts with utter disregard to his own wish and desire and belief. What we have got to know so far as possible are the are the things that actually happened in the world. Then with that much clear and open to every reader, the philosopher and prophet has a chance to interpret these facts, but the historian has no right posing as a scientist to conceal or distort facts. Until we distinguish between these two functions of the chronicler of human action, we are going to render it easy for a muddled world out of sheer ignorance to make the same mistake 10 times over. One is astonished in the study of history at the reoccurrence of the idea that evil must be forgotten, distorted, skimmed over. We must not remember that Daniel Webster got drunk, but only remember that he was a splendid constitutional lawyer. We must forget that George Washington was a slave owner, or that Thomas Jefferson had mulatto children, or that Alexander Hamilton had Negro blood, and simply remember the things we regard as credible and inspiring. The difficulty, of course, with this philosophy is that history loses its value as an incentive and example. It paints perfect men and noble nations, but it does not tell the truth.
4: Hmm.
9: No one reading the history of the United States during 1850 and 1860 can have the slightest doubt left in his mind that Negro slavery was the cause of of the Civil War. And yet during and since we have learned that a great nation murdered thousands and destroyed millions on account of abstract doctrines concerning the nature of the federal union. Since the attitude of the nation concerning state rights has been revolutionized by the development of the central government since the war, the whole argument becomes an astonishing reducto ad absurdum, leaving us apparently with no cause for the civil war except the recent reiteration of statements which make the great public men on one side narrow, hypocritical, fanatics, and liars, while the leaders on the other side were extraordinary and unexampled for their beauty, unselfishness, and fairness. Not a single great leader during the nation of the nation during the Civil War and Reconstruction has escaped attack and libel. The magnificent figures of Charles Sumner and Thaddeus Stevens have been besmirched. Beyond, almost beyond recognition. We have been controlling and flattering the South and slurring the North because the South is determined to rewrite the history of the slave and the North is not interested in history, but in wealth. <laughs> this then is the book basis upon which today we judge reconstruction. In order to paint the South as a martyr to an inescapable fate, to make the North the magnum, that magnanimous magnum- emancipator and to ridicule the, the Negro as an impossible joke in the whole development. We have in 50 years by libel, innuendo and silence. So completely misstated and obliter- obliterated the history of the Negro in America and his relation to its work and government that today is almost unknown. This may be a fine romance, but it is not science. It may be inspiring, but it is certainly not the truth. And beyond that, or beyond this, it is dangerous. It is not only part foundation of for present lawless lawlessness and loss of democratic ideals. It has more than that, led the world to embrace and worship the color bar as a social salvation and it is help, and it is helping to range mankind in ranks of mutual hatred and contempt at the summons of a cheap and false myth. Nearly all the recent books of reconstruction agree with each other in disregarding the government reports and substituting selected diaries, letters, and gossip. Yet it happens that the government records are historic are a are an historic source. Of wide and unrivaled authenticity, there is the part. There is a report of the Select Committee of fifteen, which delved painstakingly into the situation all over the South, and called all kinds of all kinds and conditions of men to testify. There are the reports of Carl Schwartz and the twelve volumes of reports made on the Ku Klux Conspiracy, and above all, the Congressional Congressional Globe. None who has not read page by page the Congressional Globe, especially the sessions of the 39th Congress, can possibly have any idea of what the problems of reconstruction facing the United States were in 1865 to 1866. Then there are the reports of the Freedmen's Bureau and the executive and other documentary reports of government officials, especially in the war and treasury departments which give the historian the only groundwork upon which he can build a real and truthful picture. There are the certain historians who have not tried deliberately to false the picture. Southern whites like Francis Butler Lee and Susan Sneed. Northern historians like McPherson, Albert Hoser, and Nicolay uh, and Hay. There are foreign travelers like Sir George Campbell, Georges uh, Clemenceau and Robert uh, Summers. There are personal reminiscences, reminiscences of Augustus, Be- Augustus Beard, George Julian, George F. Hoare, Charles Short, and John Sherman. There are the invaluable work of Edward McPherson and more recent studies by Paul Harworth, A. A. Taylor, and Charles Wesley. Beale simply does not take Negroes into account in the critical year of 1866. Certain monographs deserve all praise, like those of Hendricks and Pierce. The work of Flack is prejudices, but built on study. The defense of the carpetbag regime by Torgier and Allen, Powell, Clayton, Holden, and Warmorth are worthy antidotes to the certain writers. The lies of Stephen and Sumner are revealing even when slightly apologetic because of the Negro, while Andrew Jackson is beginning to suffer from writers who are trying to prove how seldom he got drunk and think that (laughs) important. It will be noted that for my authority in this work, I've depended very largely upon secondary material, upon state histories of reconstruction written in the main by those who were convinced before they began to uh, write that the Negro was incapable of government or of becoming a a constituent part of the civilized state. The fairest of these histories have not tried to conceal facts. In other cases, the black man had been largely ignored while in in still others, he has been uh, traduced and ridiculed. If I had time and money and opportunity to go back to the original sources in all cases, there can be no doubt that the weight of this work would have been vastly strengthened, as I firmly believe the case of the Negro more convincingly set forth. Various volumes of papers in the great libraries, like the Johnson papers in the Library of Congress, the Sumner manuscripts of Harvard, the Shorts correspondence, the Welsh papers, the Chase papers, the Fessenden and Greeley collections, the McCulloch, McPherson, Sherman, Stevens, and Trumbull papers, all must have much of great interest to the historians of the American Negro. I have not done, or I had not, I have not had time, nor opportunity to examine these. And most of those who have examined them had little interest in black folk. Negroes uh, have done some excellent work on their own history and defense. It suffers of course from national partisanship and a desire to prove a case in the face of a chorus of unfair attacks. Its best work also suffers from the fact that Negroes would difficulty reach an audience. But this is also true of such white writers as Skaggs and Bancroft who could not get first class publishers because they were saying something that the nation did not like. (laughs) The Negro historians began with autobiographies and reminiscences. The otter historians were George W. Williams and Joseph T. Wilson. The new school of historians is led by Carter G. Woodson and I have have been greatly helped by the unpublished theses of four of the youngest Negro students. It is most unfortunate that while many young white southerners can find funds to attack and ridicule the Negro and his friends, it is almost impossible for the first class Negro students to get a chance for research or to get finished work in print. I write then in a field devastated by passion and belief. Naturally, as a Negro, I cannot do this writing without believing in the essential humanity of Negroes in their ability to be educated, to do the work of the modern world, to take their place as equal citizens with others. I cannot for a moment subscribe to that bizarre doctrine of race that makes most men inferior to the few, but, Two, as a student of science, I want to be fair, objective and judicial, to let no searing of the memory by intolerable insult and cruelty make me fail to sympathize with the human frailties and contradiction and the eternal paradox of good and evil. But armed and worn by all of this and fortified by long study of the facts, I stand at the end of this writing literally aghast at what American historians have done to this field. What is the object of writing the history of reconstruction? Is it to wipe out the disgrace of the people who fought to make slaves of Negroes? Is it to show that the Negro or the North had a higher motives than freeing Black men? Is it to prove that Negroes were Black angels? No. It is simply to establish the truth on which right in the future may be built. We shall never have a science of history until we have in our colleges men who regard the truth as more important than the defense of the white race and who will not deliberately encourage students to gather thesis material in order to support a, a prejudice or buttress a lie. Three-fourths of the testimony against the Negro in Reconstruction is on the unsupported evidence of men who hated and despised Negroes and regarded it as loyalty to blood, patriotism to country and filial tribute to the fathers to lie, steal or kill in order to discredit these black folk. This may be a natural result when a people have been humbled and impoverished and degraded or degraded in their own life but what is inconceivable is that another generation and another group should regard this testimony as scientific truth, when it is contradicted by logic and by fact. This chapter, therefore, which in logic should be a survey of books and sources becomes a, sh- a, sh- a sheer necessity and a ra- a rhyme- arraignment. arraignment, arraignment, okay of American historians and an indictment of their ideals. With a determination unparalleled in science, the mass of American writers have started out so to distort the facts of the greatest critical period of American history as to prove right, wrong, and wrong, right. I'm not familiar enough with the vast field of human history to pronounce on the relative guilt of these and historians of other times and fields. But I do say that if the history of the past has been written in the same fashion, it is useless as science and misleading as ethics. It simply shows that with the sufficient general agreement and, and determination among the dominant classes, the truth of history may be utterly distorted and contradicted and changed. To any convenient fairy tale that the masters of men wish. I cannot believe that any unbiased mind with an ideal of truth and a scientific judgment can read the plain authentic facts of our history during 1860 to 1880 and come to conclusions essentially different from mine and yet I stand virtually alone in this interpretation. So much so that the very cognizant of my facts would make me hesitate did I not seem to see plain reasons. Subtract from Burgess his belief that only white people can rule, and he is in essential agreement with me. Remember that Rhodes was an uneducated moneymaker who hired clerks to find facts which he needed to support his thesis. And one is convinced that the same labor and expense could easily produce quite opposite results. One fact and one alone explains the attitude of most recent writers toward reconstruction. They cannot conceive Negroes as men. In their minds, the word Negro uh, connotes inferiority and stupidity, lightened only by unreasoning, gaiety and humor. Suppose the slaves of 1860 had been white folk. Stevens would have been a great statesman, Sumner, a great Democrat, and a keen profit in a mighty revolution of rising humanity ignorance and poverty would easily have been explained by history and the demand for land and and the franchise would have been justified as the birthright of natural freemen but burgess was a slaveholder dunning a copperhead in roads an exploiter of wage labor not one of them apparently ever met an educated negro of force and ability Around such impressive thinkers gathered the young post war students of the South. They had been born and reared in the bitter, bitterest period of Southern race hatred, fear, and contempt. Their instinctive reasons were confined and encouraged in the best of American universities. Their scholarship, when it regarded black men, became deaf, dumb, and blind. The clearest evidence of Negro ability, work, honesty, patience, Learning and efficiency became distorted into cunning, brute toil, shrewd evasion, cowardice, and imitation—a stupid effort to transcend laws, nature, or nature's law. For these seven mystic years between Johnson's swing around the circle and the Panic of 1873, a majority of thinking Americans in the North believed in the equal manhood of black folk. They acted accordingly with a clear cut decisiveness and thorough logic, unutterly, or utterly incomprehensible to a day like ours, which does not share this human faith. And to Southern whites, this period can only be explained by deliberate vengeance and hate. The panic of 1873 brought sudden disillusion in business enterprise economic organization, religious belief and political standards. A flood of appeal from the white south reinforces action or reaction. Appeal with no longer the arrogant bluster of slave oligarchy, but the simple moving annals of the plight of a conquered people. The result, the resulting emotional and intellectual rebound of the nation made it nearly inconceivable in 1876 that 10 years earlier, most men had believed in human equality. Assuming therefore, as axiomatic, the endless inferiority of the Negro race, these newer historians, mostly Southerners, some Northerners who deeply sympathize with the South, misinterpreted, distorted, and even deliberately ignored any fact that challenged or contradicted this assumption. If the Negro was admittedly subhuman, what need to waste time delving into this reconstruction history? Consequently, historians of reconstruction with a few exceptions, ignore the Negro as completely as possible, leaving the, le- leaving the reader wondering why an element apparently so insignificant filled the whole Southern picture at a time. at the time. The only real excuse for this attitude is loyalty to a lost cause. Reverence for a brave, for brave fathers and suffering mothers and sisters, and fidelity to the ideals of a clan and class. But in propaganda against the Negro since emancipation in this land, we face one of the most stupendous efforts the world ever saw to discredit human beings—an effort involving universities, history, science, social life, and religion. The most magnificent drama in the last thousand years of human history is the transportation of 10 million human beings out of the dark beauty of their mother continent into the newfound found El-, El Dorado of the West. They descended into hell. And in the third century, they arose from the dead in the finest effort to achieve democracy for the working millions which this world had ever seen. It was a tragedy that beggared the Greek. It was an upheaval of humanity, like the Reformation and the French Revolution. Yet we are blind and led by the blind. We discern in it no part of our labor movement, no part of our industrial triumph, no part of our religious experience. Before the dumb eyes of 10 generations, of 10 million children, it is made mockery and spit upon, a degradation of the eternal mother, a sneer at human effort with aspiration and art deliberately and elaborately distorted. And why? Because in a day when the human mind aspired to a science of human action, a history and psychology of the mighty effort of the mightiest century, we fell under the leadership of those who would compromise with truth in the past in order to make peace in the present and guide policy in the future. One reads the truer, deeper facts of reconstruction with great despair. It is at once so simple and human and yet so futile. There is no villain, no idiot, no saint. They are just men, men who crave case and power, men who know want and hunger, men who have crawled. They all dream and strive with ecstasy of fear and strain of effort, balked of hope and hate. Yet the rich world is wide enough for all, wants all, needs all. So slight a gesture, a word might set the strife in order. Not with the full content, or content, but with the growing dawn of fulfillment. Instead roars the crash of hell, and after its whirlwind, a teacher sits in academic halls, learned in the tradition of its elms and its elders. He looks into the upturned face of youth, and in him, youth sees the gown shape of wisdom and hears the voice of God cynically he sneers at chinks and niggers he says that the nation has changed its views in regard to the political relations of races and has at last virtually accepted the ideas of the south upon that subject the white men of the south need now have no further fear that the republican party or republican administrations will ever again give themselves over to the vain imagination of the political equality of man Immediately in Africa, a black, a black back runs red with the blood of the lash. In India, a brown girl is raped. In China, a coolie starves. In Alabama, seven darkies are more than lynched. While in London, the white limbs of the prostitute are hung with jewels and silk. Flames of jealous murder sweep the earth while the brains of little children smear, smear the hills. This is education in the 1935 year, or 30, 50 year of the Christ. This is the modern and exact social science. This is the university course in History 12 set down by the Sinaticus and Academius. Ad quos have literate pervernate solitum te semprotetinum.
4: I don't know how to say that.
9: Okay, all right. And it says, in Babylon, dark Babylon, who take the wage of shame? The scribe and singer, one by one, that toil for gold and fame. They grovel to their master's mood, the blood upon the pen, assigns their souls to servitude, yea, and the souls of men.
4: Wow. thank you.
0: It's a lot of work. Wow, I forgot that ending part. Yeah, he talks about imperialism, like colonialism imperialism.
2: Yeah, the the ending reminds me of The Fire Next Time. It has a similar emotional tone
9: mm-hmm. and it's like this is like the chapter that you know jared ball he was like i've read propaganda of history and then like other people generally go to this book and they're like i know propaganda of history but haven't read the rest of this book but it's like this chapter is more specific than it being a indictment upon a white narrative or a certain call to the ruling class or a hindrance of like some abstract and vague like um, thing. Um, because we're also reading this chapter after going through um, as we could on live, but then as we can on our own, the rest of the book. Um, and he's saying it clear, like we still have a job to do. Um, in this moment of history, which is to tell the truth, and yeah I just, and it's just it's so sweet how he 's like, well, here's more resources for other historians who want to know the truth and study the truth, and he gives like the complexity and the specificity, the the detail the detail um even if they're racist, well, they still studied science, they had a you know responsibility to science um and that also anchors why like the question of truth is even important like how do you regard the truth is it for the use of a belief or is it for the use of science um and what what is the purpose of anything um rather than you know having history being some white man's narrative or something that has to do like you saying like a thesis or a belief system but that literally the undermining or like the uh, the undergirding of a um, study has a, a has a definite purpose, first of all, in mind. Um, and for Du Bois, it was to study the truth, which he can only get to, and not only because he, he was like, I know I'm I'm but a bone and bone, flesh and flesh. Who am who am I? Right, but it has. Um, He's also like, he's saying he's, he you know, that last par- last couple of paragraphs, he's describing human beings. Like nobody's a God, nobody's a savior. There's no, and then as we're talking in our conversation, it doesn't have to just do with these choices that people make, but that this system of imperialism that was also um, made to colonize and de- degrade humankind moving forward. Um, And people want power, people want money, people want wealth. they are those who work and they're the lives of all to be considered in the narrative of history um, that plays a role in how we understand our moment today to how we can understand the moments coming forward. Um, Like I was also thinking in the last chapter as we read the end of it, like how King's significance was so significant and that he wasn't just a man born and he's like a king and you know, blah, 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 but that he answered the call of his time. Mm-hmm. He answered the needs um, of the moment, um, which is also what Du Bois is doing, but to be able to stand up for the truth, to stand up on the principles that were right, democracy, what does democracy mean? To end imperialism to, that degrades labor upon war, poverty, and racism, to totally transform humanity, to, or to rightfully place it um, to these to these moments of chance, like these moments in which that human beings could know each other, love each other, and be um, able to grow with one another. Um, yeah, it has to. This chapter has to do with more of the story that is to be continued further. Like mm-hmm. how, like one, how to deeper study. And he was also criticizing himself. He was like, well, there were more, I could I could redo this whole project. Um if I read more, if I understood more, I could make my point that Negroes were human beings um more clear for the audience who needs it. But you know, I didn't have the time, I didn't have the opportunity. Um and what I'm saying is that this chapter has more to do with the fact of what we can do moving forward, that this whole book also is also coming to. That we learn reconstruction, not just for the sake of you know being comfortable or telling ourselves that we we are totally fine in the world and have nothing to change, um, but that we have we have democracy to still um, you know attest to, uh, still to work out um, and use in like in this country. Um, but yeah, it's interesting because I think that this chapter opens up dialogues for the, even the education question. Like what we were, well, I was coming into the conversation when free school didn't even start on the live stream when they were talking about philosophy and how like knowledge can be actually used. Um, and it seems like knowledge can only be used with democracy. It can't be used without democracy. Right, this is um,
1: very, a very important point, mm. that knowledge, is should be used for the purpose of humanity. Mm-hmm. Remember, he, uh, Du Bois makes a similar statement in uh, Galileo Galilei, you know, where he says science is a, a great mistress, but there's one greater, and that is humanity. This is, um, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I very much agree with you. This is a heartfelt plea, as you say, looking forward, that scholars and intellectuals do their work carefully, but the purpose being to free humanity rather than to keep a job. Um, And it's, you know, Du Bois at this time, he had never been invited to teach at any white university, including the University of Pennsylvania, he was very much aware of the color line in the production of knowledge, that the defense of white supremacy was an attack upon knowledge and science itself. Um, I mean, I, I think I think this remains a great uh, homage to to what the ideological struggle must be. I think. I agree with you uh, that we owe a debt, of debt, a debt of gratitude to Du Bois for pouring this final chapter out, you know, going to the depths of his own soul as a researcher. Uh, his own limitations—he could, by the way, he was not allowed into certain libraries and certain archives because there was a color line. Uh, He was not uh, given, uh, how would you say, uh, uh, money to do the research. Uh, That's part of what he's saying in a subtle way. Those who denied the humanity of black people were supported. They were given university jobs. And he mentions Columbia University and Johns Hopkins. These are wealthy, well-endowed universities where no black person taught at this time. This is um, this is this, and I think you're right. This is also a statement upon the current situation uh, in the universities.
4: Yeah, I feel
0: like that. Was, I mean. I feel bad because I feel like that was a beautiful end to free school. But I'm just gonna add one thing: which is that even the bibliography, even the bibliography is yeah. beautiful and it's unorthodox. Yeah. he doesn't org. Du Bois doesn't organize the bibliography by just last names. He divides it into sections based on who hmm. they are and wh- who they represent. Like it's very sociological, mm-hmm. I guess you could say. I don't really know. Yeah. Where he says yeah. like stand these are the standards, like the anti-Negro authors. And then he says, yeah. This is the propaganda, authors who select and use facts and opinions. And then yeah, and then even the the way he also pays tribute to the un, the the lives and voices who mm-hmm. are not paid attention in history because of you know, mm-hmm. history, like the racism of history. But he wow. says like, the yeah. lives, the lives of the leaders who took part in reconstruction. Oh, wow. And he lists them. And it's like it's so not it's so opposite of academia today, like you know he's expanding knowledge like the even the bibliography is just really beautiful,
4: yeah. like negro
0: historians or he says unpublished theses these are research these are researches by young negro scholars who are unpublished, and then he lists them, yeah, Du boys is just a yeah, he's just a really amazing
4: <laughs> right
2: can I just add I think um What's remarkable about the last chapter is that it's almost like he's operating on many different levels. Mm-hmm. He's having to respond to like the emerging, the emergence of the Dunning school, but also I think he, by basically declaring that there is a moral dimension to knowledge, he's also responding to kind of like the, was it like the positivists? Like the people who are just like, oh, knowledge is like just knowledge and there's no like metaphysical dimension to it and um, I think what's also I don't know yeah there's a lot that you can draw out from the last chapter but I think part of it is it's interesting to like I'm really happy that for the Black Reconstruction Symposium that we did last month or a month or so ago that we traced simultaneously the like, the development of, you could say, like, Du Bois' logic of the people, but also we were able to critique how the, basically, like, the thought and the rationale and the logic of the ruling class itself has also kind of developed in an attempt to also, to still counter Du Bois, like, by going directly at people like Gerald Horn and Eric Foner and, like, the Columbia people and how, yeah, I don't know. It's just interesting to, like, see how we have been trying to like build on the work of Du Bois as well um and yeah I think I'm I don't know it just makes me more excited than ever to continue to do what we're doing um because I think yeah essentially Du Bois he's showing that the color line and the slamming down of Reconstruction and of the experience of Reconstruction was not only detrimental to Black labor, but also to white labor. And right. that this belief in the, in the inhumanity of Black people was also something that basically kept White the white worker in chains because he was not able to also believe in his own capacity. Right. and And I think that part of the task of today is to bring this message out and to bring these ideas out um, because Du Bois is trying to make a case for the possibilities and the capacities of human beings, like of ordinary people. And like that is like the fundamental core value, but also like the lesson that we're trying to glean from Du Bois and how he does this study of reconstruction. Because yeah, the last thing I'll say is that like when we're reading the back towards slavery part, the very end, when he says, the tragedy of reconstruction is that most Americans have not been able to understand it. Like they haven't understood it. What's interesting about that is that the whole point it's like, he's almost doing like a self-referential thing where the point of a tragedy is to teach a lesson. Mm. And so he's, he's almost like, he's saying like, like the tragedy is that it has not even been understood as like a proper tragedy. And it hasn't been like fully Uh, understood in that literary way. And that so like, it's almost like he's saying that even from the suppression of the knowledge of reconstruction, that in itself teaches something to the people too. Like not just reconstructing itself, but also the way that it has been suppressed. And both of these are things that can produce basically new lessons for the people. Um, but yeah, I, I just thought that was interesting. The way that he phrases like the tragedy is that we
3: haven't even realized the tragedy, <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's also like such a parallel between reconstruction and the anti-colonial, the third, the the movements to establish states, to develop, to move um, majority of people um, on this planet forward. And um, yeah, I just wanted to say that, that it's you, you can use this framework like all around the world um, and it's really the same framework. The propaganda of history, everything you did was a failure. Everything white people taught you is what's right. And white people are gonna keep telling you that what you did was wrong. And you know only the white thinkers have a, a say or the white leaning thinkers have a say. So um, yeah, it's really like, it is the framework needed especially now the multipolar world where people need to believe in their history and the strides that they made, the strides that their people made.
11: Yeah, and I guess just to add to that, I would say this this philosophy that I think pervades the the uh, traditional Western historian this philosophy of fear is incompatible with the with the uh, scientific search for truth.
4: Yeah,
11: uh, that requires a, uh, a a certain level of of courage uh, to yeah. be able to show that this is what I believe. This is this is what I'm working with here, and this is how I'm going to try to pr- uh, proceed. Uh, forward uh, without that we're sort of left in I think I'm trying to remember the way he described this sort of mechanized interpretation mm-hmm. and losing the plot of oh, humanity okay. um, and that's really in many ways where we see ourselves is um, is really um, driven to be fearful and in the dark of these things instead of trying to just see okay. them what they are and perceive from that you know that perspective which Puts us in danger in certain ways. We have to be willing to accept that if we really want to, uh, you know, ascertain truth, which he makes makes it a, a point to capitalize <laughs> truth and right these kind of things. Um, so,
0: oh yeah, Serafina says she's to go. Magnus says I have to go. Mm-hmm. Sounds like people want to eat lunch to me. <laughs> 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 but I'm, but, okay, but, oh, sorry. Did you want to say something, Jeremiah?
9: I know, really? you're not going to
0: say <laughs> I was going to say, before we log off, though, Doc, did you want to give people a preview of the direction we're heading in? With-
1: yes, I think it very much relates to this last chapter because, um, you know, you uh, know, you know, we're entering a different period of the ideological struggle. Not not that, you know, all of these previous debates, when I say all of these, I mean the last 10 years and what we've been through. But this uh, technological determinism that we now see emerge, the and the ideology that supports it, that we see emerging, with this new uh, artificial intelligence and GPT, Chad GBT, the idea that the human being is not essential to the uh, advancement of humanity. Uh, in fact, human beings, or using Du Bois' uh, words in this last chapter, uh, that human beings are superfluous Human, most of humanity gets in the way of progress and hence you can see the connections even though they don't have to be conscious connections between this uh, the majority of white working people are fascists and white supremacists hence are. Obstacles to human progress. Well, then, what is the answer? It is in technology. I and so we want to return to philosophy. Some of the questions that we saw in Hegel's Science of Logic, uh, and 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 some, you know, revisions, so to speak. But we want to go back to that in order to take up some of the questions of uh, of uh, of artificial intelligence some of the problems in theoretical physics. Uh, For example, the the whole notion that uh, the physical world exists because we are conscious of it. Our consciousness brings it into existence. This is not a question of physics experiments. This is a philosophical question. And I think... Uh, we have to address it. And so that's where we're going to go for the next couple of weeks.
0: Wow, i so excited.
4: <laughs>
0: okay, well, thanks everyone for joining. Yeah, a round of applause. Thanks everyone for watching and listening. Um, I'm not moody. I appreciate all of you watching. I mean, I'm in a sentimental mood. Love you all. And Megna left, but.
4: Take I'm care. Gonna... will Bye talk. bye. Bye-bye.
0: Oh, oops. Hold on. I need the broadcast.
4: <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute.